Episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Chris McGrain. Chris is a former principal teacher of maths up in sunny Scotland and is now the maths lead in Scotland for LaSalle Education. Now, long-time listeners of the podcast will have heard Chris's dulcet tones on the Research Ed Scotland Conference Takeaway podcast last year, and like me, will have been desperate for more. Yep, I am a huge fan of Chris. As I've previously mentioned on this podcast, Chris is a wonderful user of Twitter in the way that he pulls in loads of different views on his ideas from a wide range of practitioners. I really need to learn more from the way Chris uses Twitter. And like me, he's undergone something of a transformation in his teaching and thinking about learning. But fascinatingly, we seem to have gone off in slightly different directions, which would hopefully make for a fiery, interesting conversation. So in a wide-ranging, challenging and fascinating chat, Chris and I discuss the following things and plenty more besides. Chris describes his favourite failure and tells me what he learned from the experience. Chris gives us, gives us an overview sorry, into how his approach to teaching has changed and just why this change has happened. And then we go deep, we go really deep into task design, with Chris describing how his approach to both creating and also choosing and adapting existing tasks has changed. Chris then takes us through three of his favourite mathematical tasks, describing why he likes them and how he uses them. And images of these tasks are available now in the show notes so you can play along at home. We then turn our attention to the importance of classroom talk and how as teachers we can help our students get better at conversing. And then it all kicks off. And we love it when it kicks off, when we discuss a few things that we may well disagree on, including old time podcast classics, atomization and minimally different problems. Now, I loved this conversation. I find it absolutely fascinating when I'm lucky enough to speak to someone who has been teaching roughly the same time as me. And even better, when that somebody has undergone a similar journey in terms of their initial ignorance of educational research. And now a bit of a revolution has happened. But when it comes to Chris and I, we've gone off in slightly different directions, reaching slightly different conclusions. And I'll be reflecting on these differences in the takeaway section at the end of this episode. The usual plugs before we get cracking. My book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, is still available from all good and all evil bookshops. If you want to sponsor this podcast, and why wouldn't you, then just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com to discuss the sponsor packages available. You can now also support the podcast via Patreon and sign up to buy me a Mellow Birds coffee a month. Details in the show notes or via patreon.com forward slash mrbartonmaths. And finally, some of you may be aware that I'm hosting a new series of podcasts that I'm dead proud of called Inside Exams, where I go behind the scenes of an awarding body asking the questions you want 
asking. And um, there's some cracking episodes. I particularly like the social media episode. I think it's episode number three, if I'm right, where we discuss what happens at an awarding body when it all kicks off online. Think Hannah's sweets. What are, what are awarding bodies thinking when something like that is bubbling up on Twitter? Just follow the links in the show notes or search for Inside Exams wherever you get your podcasts from. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Chris McGrain. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. So, Chris, we start, as we always do on the podcast, with your maths speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Very simple answer for this one. The number eight. Oh, okay. Go on. Tell me why. Um, it's a power of two, and I just love the powers of two. Um, I did a bit of computer science back when I was at university as well. So that that pattern of the powers of two, two to the power of zero, one, two to the power of two, two to the power of three, two to the power of four, two to the power of minus one, two to the power of minus three, um, all that sort of stuff. Just um, really just like that kind of symmetry that's in there with all the with all the pairs of two and not much else to it. Oh, I like it. I like there is. I, I, funny you should say actually. I remember myself as a student being fascinated with uh, with numbers doubling and figuring out on a calculator. I think the old calculator used to press some like two plus plus equals or something, and you, you could see these numbers double, double, double. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That, and it, it was just like the, the speed that these things got bigger and bigger and bigger as you eight, sixteen, thirty-two, and so on. Yeah, there's something nice about the powers of two. Good, good. There's something. Something. Something lovely about that. Yeah. And I promised Mark McCourt I wouldn't say anything wrong, but I realise I've done it already. <laughs> Go on. Uh, and he's at pains with language all the time. So it's two to the power negative one, two to the power negative oh, two. Oh, jeez. Not yeah. two to the power minus one. So I'll get him a knuckles wrap for that one. <laughs> Well, when you say he's a, he's a pain with the language, he's just a painful stop I'm tending to find these days, Chris. So yeah, there'll, be, there'll be numerous of mis- numerous mistakes throughout this, I'm sure he'll, he'll love picking up on. Um, question number two then, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Uh, definitely trigonometry. Oh wow, I don't think we've had that one before. What, how come trig? Um, it's still my favourite one to teach as well, actually. Um, I just find it fascinating how well interconnected it all is. Like how you start off with, um, obviously, right angle triangles, you build this up with sine and cosine rule, all that sort of stuff. But then you begin to see these other representation. They come to life when you begin to, to plot the graphs. And then you begin to see the, the cyclic nature of the functions. And then when things like tan appear, you've got these asymptotes, all this sort of stuff's amazing. Um, then you bring in the unit circle and then you talk about exact values. I just kind of love the way that all of this, like layer upon layer upon layer of meaning, and then you go in, and you begin to get these amazing identities, like um, cos squared add sine squared is equal to 1, for instance, as well. Um, that kind of thing, uh, for, just from Pythagoras to the unit circle, and then extending that even further, when I mean, you're talking about stuff like sec and cosec and, uh, and such like. So it's just the whole the whole thing just got a nice aesthetic appeal to it, I suppose. Um that is always kind of appeal to me. 
that's nice that so I, I guess yeah when you say that you you, you realize the full scope of trig and i think i'm just thinking now a mistake i've made in the past i reckon if i say to uh, kids what's trigonometry they'll just say sine cos and tan that's that's their limited view of what it is whereas you're absolutely right like it, it starts before then and it, and it stretches way beyond then that's mm. yeah that's lovely lovely that chris and um, final speed dating question what job would you like to do if you weren't involved in maths education um, this is going to get a few laughs, I think. <laughs> um, I seriously considered at the end of university um, becoming a train driver. <laughs> right, okay. Um, <laughs> either that or a pilot. I think I, I would enjoy I enjoy those two kind of jobs, which are quite a quite a deviation, I suppose, from being a maths teacher. Wow, what is it? What is it? What um, are those? I like travelling, I suppose, um, and there's that kind of. You know, that guy on a mission, you know, that way sometimes you've yes. got a lesson, you're getting through it, you get through it. I kind of feel like, and then what happens in a moment, you get these, in a lesson, you get these moments whereby something happens that disturbs your flow. Now, that's learning and teaching, but sometimes that's annoying. Yes. Whereas I just kind of figure, hopefully, if you're flying an airplane, nothing would kind of get in your way and you just keep flying through the sky. So that's a, I don't know, that's a silly answer. But No, I like it and deep as well, Chris. I like that. Super fantastic stuff. Well, let's turn to your career now. So I wonder if you could briefly just take us through the steps from um, how it all started with you to, to where you are today. Yeah, um, obviously went through school, um, enjoyed maths, but enjoyed quite a few other subjects as well um geography computing things like that as well and um, i went to university um it's maths and computing i did and at the end of that um i was doing a lot by working computing uh, programming and stuff like that and i remember sitting in the office one day thinking to myself this is destroying me i it is the most like the, the work itself wasn't boring but there's that and it's such a cliche I just didn't feel like I was making a difference. Yes. Um, and I had always kind of had this idea in my head. And this was right about the turn of the, the millennium. But the computing was, like, it was the future, you know, that kind of way. And go into that, you'll make lots of money and all this sort of stuff. So I had this image, the idea in my head that I'd go off, I'd work in computing, become a millionaire, and then I'd come back and spend the last 10 years of my career being a teacher. But I kind of realised that actually I'm delaying what I actually want to do. Yes. I always actually wanted to be a teacher. I was just suppressing that. Um, and sat in that chair in the office. It was December the 22nd. I always remember this. I just sent an email to Glasgow University. How do you become a teacher? I want to start next year. And the email back saying, you've just made it um, for the for the applications. And before you know it, then come August, uh, the following year, I was off doing teacher training. Wow. Uh, and that was, that was really good. I enjoyed that. Going to a different, couple of different schools. Um, then I got my first job as an NQT, uh, a probationer, as we call it up here. And this was a kind of uh, a school in the middle of nowhere, halfway between Glasgow and Edinburgh. Um, it's in the middle of nowhere to somebody from one of the cities, but um, people from there would probably object to me saying it's in the middle <laughs> of nowhere. Um, and it was, it, was, it was an interesting time. Um, and like a lot of people, that first year was quite hard. Um, I don't think I learned a lot about learning and teaching, to be honest. Most of the focus was on actually surviving and getting through it. Yes. Um, because discipline was hard. Um, and people in the department, I suppose, were lots of the really nice people, but 
when teaching and pedagogy and things like that wasn't something that was really high on the agenda we didn't talk about that particularly um so at the end of that there were interviews with that local authority and um i managed to secure a post at the highest attaining school in that authority so off i went there and there was always this kind of image that well they get good results because they've got good kids that was always what it seemed but that was a that was very unfair because when I got there, um, it was an absolutely outstanding department. Like the the, the calibre of the teaching that was going on and um, the professional dialogue and the the enthusiasm was was second to none. Lots and lots of very experienced staff there. And as those guys began to retire, other young people like myself were coming in, and we then began to kind of uh, take on that mantle. And there was a real focus on teaching for understanding, on uh, mathematical thinking, all this sort of stuff. Um, and I really began to learn how to teach in that school, as opposed to just how to, to behave or manage. Yes. Um, so that was a, a really f- a formative time for me, and I was there for the best bit of a decade. Um, <coughs> when I decided then, okay, it's time to come ahead of the department, and I started looking. And one of the things I've... Uh, I'll, I'll be honest about here is a lot of people they go for jobs and some people just seem to get the first one I went for countless head of department jobs and didn't, couldn't get one um, and the thing that got me down was I wanted to talk about maths and maths teaching and when I ever went for head of department jobs they didn't want to talk about that at all <laughs> they wanted to talk about leadership they wanted to talk about management they wanted to talk about quality assurance they wanted yes. to talk about uh, government policy all this sort of stuff and I know that's got a place but very very few of the questions were ever like into the nitty gritty of right okay you make it one of what's your vision for the department but yes. then they did they didn't want anything else about that. It was all this other stuff. And I know that's important. But then um, I went for the interview at, at Hillhead, where I worked in Glasgow, and the head teacher there. The way he set it up was that basically I got to talk almost the entire time about the stuff that matters. Um, about the day-to-day aspects of being a, a head of maths, a PT maths. And it was the first time I felt I'd been eight. The questions had allowed me to express myself properly. And I got the job, um, and I had a really good time there. Yeah, and I was there for three and a half years, um, and at that, and this is when the whole my first encounter with this idea of mastery and all this sort of, um, all the research and all the reading. Like I'd done a little bit of reading before then, but perhaps not to the extent <coughs> that I I realised there was reading to be done. Yes. If that makes sense, I didn't even know a lot of the things that are things I'm studying now were things to be studied yes um, so that, that was quite a big deal for me um, but moving into an, an inner city school in Glasgow um, you kind of realise that the challenges are different from where I was before and uh, new ideas are going to be needed and this idea of mastery learning this formative assessment cycle uh, really appealed to me I'd, I'd read about it before <coughs> but thought no, this is definitely going to be how I'm going to take this forward. And I think, now I'm not going to guarantee it, but I think we were the first school in Scotland to, to attempt to, to do this. Um, and you know what happens? Like looking back on it now, we pre- we've done pretty much all of it wrong. But, but that's that, is that kind of that iterative process that goes on all the time, isn't it? You're always yes. learning. Uh, and round about that time, I had my first encounter with Mark McCourt, 
uh, I went down to LaSalle event because they didn't operate in Scotland at that time. Uh, I went down to Kendall in the Lake District and there were four of us sat here in this room um, and he just opened my eyes to a whole world that I didn't know existed. The like, people like uh, Malcolm Swan and John Mason and Anne Watson, all of the, all of the, like, these are these names were, to be honest with you, well, they're world-renowned maths educators. Like, I had never heard anyone talk about them in Scotland, which is an absolute wow. shame. It's a shame. Um, and I think if my colleagues were being honest, uh, I think they would say the same. This is, um, we've perhaps been too parochial and inward-looking. Um, and pe- maybe, and I'm not saying nobody had heard of them. There's definitely been in the past, but... Uh, in in my teacher training, we were never told about anything like this. And can um, I just can I it, just ask us were the equivalents that you were told about? Were there kind of Scottish equivalents or equivalents from the US, or were, were there replacements <laughs> for the Ann Watsons, the, the the John Masons, and the Malcolm Swans? Um, or was it just just not discussed this kind of teaching no, or pedagogy? It, it was it was all very focused on. See, we, when I came in, it was right at the start of a time of big curricular change. This curriculum for excellence which um, was meant to liberate teachers. And instead what it did, well, I don't want to get too political. <laughs> sure, basically, sure. basically um, it's been varied, right? And subject specialism, subject knowledge, wasn't something that really was perceived to matter that much. Right. So so as such, that was never then going to be a focus. So the main, the main source of CPD for me, at that point, we sort of went to the National uh, Scottish Maths Conference that the Scottish Maths Council run every year. And you go along to that and you'd occasionally hear somebody say something, wow, that's really cool, that's really you. Um, and what I would do is I'd aimlessly hop about on Amazon <laughs> trying to buy books about maths teaching and most of the ones that I bought completely sucked. Um, <laughs> I've, I've got, I've got, uh, I've got a cupboard of shame of all these books which <laughs> will never be opened again uh, but you know that way it's, it's almost like one guy has this little idea about what maths teaching is then he gets a book deal writes it and then and, um, but I'm like the books that I, I couldn't even you go on now and I look at the reviews it's like one star like, yes. and there's a single review it's like well why did they even buy that but I'm just desperate for something um, because I was always seeking this out but I just couldn't find it on my own you always kind of need that help in hand and one book that I did come across was a book called Teaching Today by a guy called Jeff Petty. I don't know if you've come across no, it. I haven't. No, no, I haven't. And Jeff Petty did that and he did another one called Evidence Based Teaching, A Practical Approach. Now, his books basically are like research synopsis. And if, I'm going to say a book that's most similar to would be yours. Um, it's not math specific, but it's, and I'll be honest, I don't agree with everything in it. Um, because it's kind of pre-cognitive load theory, mm. like being popularised and all that. But there's a lot, <coughs> a lot of stuff in here which is which is very good, um, particularly in the second book. So if we get to the second book, we begin to talk a lot, a lot about um, Hattie and effect sizes, which I know get a bit of a bad rep now. But at the time, that was like that was like wow for Absolutely. me. Uh, when I started reading about that, he's talking about. Uh, Visual representations, uh, reciprocal teaching, talking about mastery learning, uh, talking about um, feedback, all these kind of things, uh, which was big. And seeing feedback, that actually reminds me, Dylan William, he was he was always he was his name was always kind of prevalent 
um, that was always like, something we did talk about in Scotland. That, that's interesting, isn't it? I wonder, is that because like Dylan's stuff is across different subjects, do you think? Or, yeah, or, yeah. yeah is, that, is that the key to it? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so Dylan William and stuff like cooperative learning, these kind yes, of ideas. Yes. That kind of, we, we got a lot of that. Um, and we got a lot of um, visual kinesthetic auditory stuff and all that kind of yes. um, Pardon me, noises. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was going to say it myself, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, um, engaging with, so it was that tentative, and also I joined Twitter as well, which was massive. That's how I found out about this out. Mm. Um, and that was around about 2011, 2012, something like that. Um, 2013, I even wanted one of them. And that then... But you began to spot people who were interested and began to get stuff. That's how I discovered your website around about that time. Um, and then get Bruno Reddy, his yes. stuff at that point as well, which was a catalyst. And it, so I think I say this any time I talk anywhere, that like joining Twitter is the best CPD you can do. Mm. Um, you do have to learn to kind of discriminate, uh, discriminate on it in between, like, well, I'm going to accept that or I'm not going to accept yes. that. And, yeah, you, but that takes time because when you're new to kind of getting on it, and everyone's speaking as if what they're saying is gospel. Yes. Um, it takes time to kind of find what you actually think. I suppose. Um, but I certainly have found it incredibly useful, and the connections they've made from it as well. Um, <clears throat> taking that further a, bit, a little bit, as I say, uh, Mark kind of got me talking about the ATA. Got me talking. Got me thinking about like John Mason and Alan Watson. And then that got me thinking a lot about, about the ATM. Um, and I didn't really engage too much with it. However, at MassCon for Sheffield, um, I saw a guy called Danny Brown talking. Um, and I don't know if you you know Danny. Oh, yes. Uh, I, yeah. fact, funny you should say this. I, I had breakfast with him the other morning. So, yeah. Oh, big, cracking. Yeah, big cracking. fan. Big yeah. fan. Yeah. Uh, Danny's a great guy. And I heard him talk um, on one of John Mason's books, The Discipline of Noticing. And I thought, this guy's absolutely nuts. What is this wacky-do stuff? This is <laughs> absolutely relevant whatsoever. Who's got time to think like this? Blah, blah, blah. Now, what happens then, um, give it a little while longer. Danny ends up working in Scotland, off, up in Orkney, off the north coast, and reaches out to me and a couple of others in the Glasgow area. Let's say up an ATM branch in Glasgow. And you know what? Just with it, I, I don't know why he did it. He maybe just saw something in his all. Um, but from me and a number of others, he's been such a a real kind of positive influence on us in terms of, A, getting that branch meeting set up, introducing us to people um, and uh, these big names and getting to talk to them. And also in terms of the way we're thinking about things and telling us what else we can read and uh, kind of that 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 critical nature and not just kind of going down that one path. And I, I, I'm sure we'll talk about this, the whole uh, cognitive load theory, direct instruction, which seems to be like the, the ultimate way of going now on Twitter. He would be a lot more sceptical about that, which then got me thinking, hold on a minute, because I had accepted all this. Mm. And then you begin to waver a little bit uh, back towards the middle ground, I suppose. Um, so all of that happened. And then, um, so we set up the ATM branch and it's been running. And then um, Mark McCourt basically said, do you want to come and work with me? 
Um, and it was a bolt out of the blue because I loved being ahead of the apartment and I'm sure at some point I'm going to go back and do it again. Like, I really did enjoy it. Um, but the opportunity to come in, to, well, work, one, to work with Mark because he's so knowledgeable, but two, to get out there, to visit schools all over the country, to go out and work with teachers and also the opportunity to do tons of reading and research. Yes. Um, like the, in, the, in the three or four months working with them, I've probably read more than what I was able to condense into the past two or three years. Yes. And it's not that I wasn't trying before. It's just when you get a full teaching timetable and you're running a department and you're doing other stuff on top of that, it's so difficult um, to to get through it at the pace you need to in order to digest a lot. So um, I'm absolutely loving this at the moment. It's a really good job. Um, and it's just really nice getting out there, meeting a lot of people and, and learning all the time. And that kind of takes us up to today. Fantastic. It's fascinating stuff. And yeah, I, I want to dig into this um, a little bit as we go through the conversation, because it sounds like we've had kind of a similar journey in the sense that we started off kind of accepting just anything we were told, perhaps not even questioning things. And then I kind of swing to one side and then the cognitive load theory side and the direct instruction and then starting to question some aspects of that so yeah we'll definitely dig into that as we go through but i just want to start things off chris with um asking you about a favorite failure of yours perhaps a lesson that you taught that didn't go according to plan and, and crucially what, what did you learn from the experience i find this quite a hard one to answer because there's been so many like which didn't go the way you, you intended but I think what I would say is, rather than a specific, if you don't mind, I'm going to try and answer this more generally speaking. Sure. I think it was about previously, um, very early on in my career, um, at first school, for instance, the way that you were, it was perceived that how you teach was, here are the PowerPoint slides that everyone uses. This is the textbook page that everyone does. The next day, here's the next slides, here's the next textbook page. And I would say that pretty much every one of those lessons was my biggest failure. Um, because this idea of you teach them stuff at the board, then they do some stuff, and then they've learned, well, it just isn't the case at all. Um, there's a lovely quote by uh, Pete Griffin, and it is, teaching takes place in time, but learning takes place over time. Mm. And it's this idea that learning is a maturation process. It doesn't occur at that moment. Um, so we can't <laughs> we can say that learning is taking place, but you can't say, I am learning this now. Yes. Um, with teaching on the other hand it consists of like, these decisions and actions which take place during the lesson and you can see them as they manifest so it's this idea that like um, oh, we'll, we'll do these examples like we'll chuck up a wee bit of theory, two or three examples uh, with no example problem pairs, nothing like that in there a little bit of questioning perhaps um, chuck a textbook out <coughs> and maybe an exit ticket and to be honest that's absolutely hopeless um learning can't be measured instantly anyway i've got i'm having major issues in my head at the moment with formative assessment and how how we go about that because mm. all we can ever do is infer what has been learned we can't ever really know it's so hard to get um to, to get an external representation of what, what someone perceives something to be. And as teachers as well, we're guilty of, we hear people say something, and rather than work to try and figure out what is it and why is it, that's wrong. 
it's just like, no, no, that's not what it's meant to be, rather than working with them to, to tease that out. Um, so these days, I'd maybe more inclined to say, well, if I'm teaching a lesson, what does it mean for it to go wrong? Um, a lesson now that, if you were to say it goes wrong, I, I'd, be, I'd be relative to say, I, I don't even know if it went right any time I've got a lesson. <laughs> and it, it might feel good. Like there's been lessons, and I'm sure you've had it yourself, you've a lesson which you've taught, and like that every kid's absolutely nailed what you were asking them to do. Um, they've shown tons of immediate performance. Um, they've, they've been able to do all the stuff you've given them. But then a couple of weeks later, when you get the homework in, when it's appeared, it's absolute nonsense. It's terrible. Um, whereas other times, you've got a lesson, and it might be when you're doing something a little bit harder, uh, an inquiry or uh, a rich task or some uh, representation task, something like that. Not all of the class might succeed. It might be, if you're judging it on instantaneous performance, it might not actually have been that successful. But perhaps, and this is only conjecture, the deep thought that was going on there will actually result in more learning than the, the perfect success on the simpler tasks that were offered in the previous type of lesson. So that's just that. That's just that. Something I'm toying about with in my head at the moment. So... Um, I don't think we can we can always say what was a, a good lesson, what was a bad lesson by the observation of it. And it's more about this kind of succession of experiences over time, how we layer that up. And if at the end of it, um, we can get some evidence of learning, um, which I think is just very hard to do. It's f- fascinating that there's a, there's a couple of things to unpack from that. And the first is what one of my favorite quotes and um, that's directly related to what you're saying there, Chris, is from Doug Lamarve, who says um, one of the key goals of teaching is to distinguish. I taught it from they learnt it. And I think that's that's a big one for me. Like I've, I've walked out of lessons in the past thinking nailed that I taught that lesson really, really well. And then the next day it was as if the kids weren't even in the lesson to begin with, like nothing had stuck in their heads uh, at all. And it, it's made me realize that i taught it well is one of the most meaningless phrases in the world it means absolutely nothing the only way you know if you taught something well is if the kids have retained it the following day week month year whether they can transfer it to different situations and so on and so that's the first thing i'd say but the second thing i'm, I'm intrigued and, and i can't resist the bait here chris that you, you've, you've laid for me here about <laughs> formative assessment because um obviously i'm a big big fan of formative assessment via diagnostic questions and, and dylan's work yeah. and so on what what are some of the things what, what are you questioning about formative assessment at the moment um it's very hard to get right um like even using hinge questions, um, using good quality formative tasks uh, to, to get this, it, it, it's, it's shown you that on that day, they can do it. Mm. Or on that day, they can give you the, uh, they can fulfill the criteria to illustrate they have understood uh, in quotation marks. But, <clears throat> As I say, I think all we're ever doing there is making an inference. We, we don't actually ever really know. Um, and it's this idea that, that it's, it's, the, it's the process over time, isn't it? And it's how um, that idea of what we're talking about, well, have they remembered it? Can they transfer it? Um, can, 
have they assimilated it into the schema? Can mm. can they can they connect up with other things? Do they do they have this? And to really to pull all that out is is quite difficult. And I think when when you when you begin to simplify that, it's hard. But one of the things that we were doing, um, well, you said something a moment ago. It, it reminded me of a quote. One of the things we were doing at Hillhead as part of our master curriculum was these diagnostics. And the diagnostics were basically we've taught some stuff. Here might be a, a, a hinge question, a, an always, sometimes, never true, something conceptual, eh, something like that, or eh, give me another one like this, and then it would maybe have a few procedural kind of questions on it. And what would happen is the kids would either all be able to do it or they wouldn't, and they would react to that, and that, would, that was fine. But that in itself... Um, Kind of gave re, gives rise to the question. Well, maybe they could do it then, but how much of that was just imitation, mm. and how much of it was thinking, and how much of it was deep learning? Um, is it like they've, they've they've regurgitated what I've been saying like today, so they can do it? But can they can they actually do it um, weeks down the line? So. I, a little thing I used to say to the department quite a lot is somebody would come into the base, into the department uh, office, and they would say, oh, that seemed to go well. Well, how do you know? Mm. Like, Or they say, well, I did my diagnostic. Well, let's just see about that. Um, I was talking to a couple of colleagues. It was about composite functions. and all that. Every kid smashed it. They could all do it. It was amazing. Um, they, they all get through all the, all the formative stuff. And then, as I said, two weeks later, they, they, they couldn't do it at all. And the homework... So they weren't attending to the right ideas. They, 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 they seem to have lost the conceptual understanding of what was going on there. Um, and they weren't pulling it together properly. So I, I think it's complex. And I think that um, all we're ever doing, so I'm not saying I'm against formative assessment, far from it. It's, it's, it's absolutely vital. But all I think formative assessment can do is tell us, can they perform? Um, which is a minimum that we should be expecting of kids. We, we, we need them to be able to perform because if they can't perform, then there's definitely not going to be any learning. Yes, yes. Right, so it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And we need to then ensure that that has actually turned into something in the long term. Um, a, a cracking example of this was in um, our, one of our assessments. There was a section on area. And these kids were going off, they were doing complicated for their stage um, uh, composite area equations with triangles and rectangles and all this stuff combined. And they were doing great with it. And lots of kids were getting full marks. But what we did for the very first question is we gave them a rectangle, which was 10 by 4. But we gave them all of the dimensions. <laughs> so we marked in both the 10s, both the 4s, and we gave them multi-choice. And even though they were solving much harder questions later on. Tons of the kids got this one wrong. And I just found that completely perplexing. Yes. Yes. How can you like, how can you take this knowledge and apply it at such a high level and not make these mistakes in the context, but yet here, in this diagnostic type question, you can't. And that just, that totally flummoxed me. So um, my point here is I don't think there are definitives and I think all we're ever doing is trying to get an idea of what's going on. 
Um, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you on that. And I, I certainly think that there's a danger that we, we, we only observe performance in any kind of um, assessment or whatever we're doing. And unless we, again, r- repeat that over time, space yeah. intervals or whatever, we, we've no way of knowing whether it's either transferred to long term memory or kids have retained it or whatever language you want to use. But I think one thing that often gets missed with, with formative assessment, and I think you, you mentioned it there in, in your description, is that if students get a question wrong then we definitely know something if students get something wrong in the moment then we 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 can identify that a problem has occurred so if they get it right sure we may be observing performance it may lead to learning it may not lead to learning but if they get something wrong then that tells us something and particularly if it's i mean i'm biased particularly if it's a good diagnostic question then their wrong wrong answer will actually not just tell us that they can't perform but it'll give us a pretty good clue of the specific misconception that they've got which will allow us then to to intervene more effectively so i think yeah for me i learn the most from formative assessment when kids get things wrong because it, it tells me that there's a problem and it gives me a clue to what that problem is and i think there is a definite danger i agree with you that there is an over-reliance that that just because kids have got something right in the moment we can crack on and the way i've been thinking about this now is and i don't know if this is true in scotland chris but Certainly um, in England, um, there's, there's, there's a culture of kind of uh, rag rating things on spreadsheets, red, amber, green. And, and I just remember, like, I look back at some spreadsheets um, from my classes in the past and they're full of green. Like I set, I set them a Pythagoras uh, endotopic assessment, green. I set them a fractions one, green. And then, of course, it's a spreadsheet full of green. They then get to the GCSE and, and kids are screwing things up left, right and center. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? And of course, the thing is, they were green at the time because that was the performance it was recent in their memory they were the imitation all that kind of thing they were just focused Mm -hmm. on one thing and it's this culture of color it green and move on that was one of the biggest mistakes i made in my career i think green just tells you that they understood it at that time but you've no idea whether they can retain that or, or repeat that in the future so i think yeah i i certainly agree with you that there's a big big problem with with formative assessment in terms of you just observing performance but i would also just add that extra thing in that if kids get something wrong and it's a good formative assessment a question that tells you a hell of a lot of stuff does that make sense yeah i think so and it kind of reminds me of something uh, that you can only say it was a formative assessment if you then use it formatively if we don't act upon it then what was it it was just some task that you're you're not going to do anything with Um, and i totally agree with you that that removal of recency and of cue um that, I suppose, is the, the ultimate determinant of, well, okay, it's been a while since we did it. There's no clue here that this is what yes, it is. Yes. Can you do it? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, Chris, let, let me ask you this then. So you, you've described kind of your approach that you used to do that, that you didn't think was successful. So um, how's, your, how's your teaching change with all the kind of reading and, reading and research that, that you've done over the last couple of years? And again, it's completely up to you how you kind of choose to answer this. But if you wanted to perhaps frame it in terms of how's your approach to lesson planning changed and how's your approach to certain things within lessons, whether it be starters, retrieval, how you instruct the students what have been the big changes in your career over the last couple of years and, and why did you make those changes yeah sure um i think there's well there's definitely no typical lesson now um 
and I think it's very active. And I, I, something else I need to say at the outset here is I probably wouldn't be planning a lesson anymore. I'd be mm. sitting down thinking about a learning episode, a sequence of um, time intervals over which we're going to cover some aspect of mathematics. <clears throat> Within that, um, I'd be thinking about, OK, well, what is the concept I'm trying to get across? What, what are the key ideas here? What, what are the relationships? Because that's what maths is about, is these relationships. Um, looking at that, I'd be thinking about, well, what are the procedures that I would want them to be able to do? Do I care if they do it the same way as me or if they have some other method? That'd be a question I'd be considering. And then perhaps also be thinking carefully about, over the duration of this learning episode, am I going to give them an opportunity to behave mathematically? So I'm talking about concepts, I'm talking about procedures, and I'm talking about behaving mathematically. Mm. Now, in sense of that, I'm not talking about like low-level mathematical behaviours, like calculating and doing procedures. I'm talking about taking it up a bit, maybe doing transform- transformative stuff, like organising and systemising and visualising, um, <clears throat> moving it forward, um, comparing, classifying, generalising, specialising, uh, then perhaps even going further, further forward, giving opportunities for conjecture, for, for explaining, um, for proof, all these kind of things. And, and it wouldn't can, matter can, the class or, I, or the level. Sorry, sorry Chris, can, can I ask you, because again, I'm, all, I'm fascinated by, by lesson planning approaches. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you're saying all these things that you want to have in there, generalising, conjecture and so on, are you, just on a practical level, are you making a list of these things and then, then are you kind of writing down opportunities to, to, to bring about this kind of behaviour? What does it look like practically when, you, when you're actually putting this together, if that makes sense? I'm not always trying to shoehorn all of that in, um, but those are examples of the sort of stuff. And um, I, I, I tend not to write down a lesson plan as such the way I maybe would have in the past. Yes. I think I think what would be happening is um, if I'm, I would perhaps have some examples prepared that I was going to use. Um, so and depending on the topic, it might be example problem pairs. It might it might depend on the class if I'm going to do that or not. Um, I've been experimenting a little bit with a little bit with backwards fading and example problem pairs as well. So doing a little bit of that too. Um, so that might be in there. So we prepare that. In terms of like the the models, the metaphors, that kind of stuff as well. So I've been I need to be very clear to myself on well how how am I doing this. And how am I going to explain it? Such that it looks backwards and connects to what they already know and is extendable and is a sustainable pedagogy that we can build on. So, for instance, if we were using algebra tiles, then I would know, let's say it was, um, we were using it to collect like terms, but I'd know we've already done some algebra tiles uh, with uh, integers, with negative number work. We're going to do it today, but this will extend going forward. But I think the main thing I'd be thinking about here. Um, would be tasks. Um, I'd be looking for tasks for the pupils to do, which would give them opportunities um, to practice procedures, to develop their conceptual understanding, and then obviously to behave mathematically. Now, tasks doesn't mean for me a worksheet or um, necessarily something from Don Stewart's website. A task might just be something you say. A task might be a question. A task might be impromptu. Um, so it, it might not necessarily be something which is prepared, and it might not be something you ask every kid to do. Um, so in, in saying this, what I mean by task then is a ta- it's about 
when I think about a task now, I'm thinking about what is the activity that will result from this task. Mm. So I'm thinking about what um, what are they going to be thinking about, and what of these uh, concepts, procedures, behaviours is going to be getting developed in them doing this. Now, <coughs> um, sometimes that might be a short drill exercise. Other times it might be about multiple representations. Other times it might actually be about applying it a little bit and problem solving with it. Um, <coughs> I talk about tasks as well, though. Then that kind of ties in to questioning. Um, and they'll be talking about using like, um, the questioning prompts for mathematical thinking book. Because um, I think you say it in your own book that one of the things you suggest teachers should do, maybe rather than jointly plan lessons, is to plan questions. Yes. And I think that's um, something I've really tried to work on over the past few years. It's um, going beyond mere uh, recall of fact and asking them uh, to, to think more deeply, to explain and what have you. And one of the most powerful elements of this has been the idea of learner generation. And that is um, giving pupils opportunities um, to generate examples. Now, that might be that they are generating other questions, or it might be they might be uh, generating cases of a, mathema- of a mathematical object. For instance, um, give me a fraction between one and a half. And well, they'd give you a fraction and they say three quarters. Okay, can you give me another fraction between one and three quarters? Okay, can you go and so on? And what you can do is you've got invariance in there and you've got variance as well. So this is like variation theory, but it's ongoing just in this dialogue. And that might be a whole class exercise that you're doing with that um, on, on that particular sequence. <laughs> and other times it might be okay, um, working with a, a six year kid a few weeks ago. And he had, um, we were doing cup sketching and we'd done asymptotes, so we'd vertical asymptotes, horizontal asymptotes, um, oblique diagonal asymptotes. And I said, can you, and he was finding it all far too easy, he could, he could sketch all the cups. And I said to him, okay, can you find me, can you, A, is it possible to have an asymptote which isn't linear? And can you mm. sketch me a function that looks like that? And that was much more appropriate for him to be going off doing that. But I don't think that would has been part of my repertoire as a teacher a few yes, years ago. Yes. I think instead I'd have been saying, right, go to the, cha- the challenge question, which is just like hard algebra, which isn't really deepening the thinking. So it's, it's really looking at that kind of sense of it. Um, and so I can't, I can't narrow it down and be specific. It really depends upon what I'm doing in any day. Uh, but it's about, it's, it's about uh, a friend of mine, Tom Carson, um, of Peace Math. Oh, yes. Of Peace Maths on Twitter. Um, he talks a lot about um, having available actions as a teacher. Um, so you, you've got these professional actions available to you, which you can then, um, you, you, you're sensitive to what's going on in your classroom, and then you can choose to use these at certain points or not with individuals, with groups, with the whole class or not at all. Um, and you might make a choice, no, I'm not going to do that, or I'm going to make a choice to do that. Um and I think I think it's a much more <coughs> fluid kind of uh, classroom dynamic that I've been going for over the past few years than before. It's not scripted as tightly. Um, it's one of the things I would say about like even if I do have like my examples written down, like if I've got a sequence of examples um, that I want to maybe go over with the kids, it's about being reactive. Like just because I've got four or five example problem pairs with a kind of perceived low ability class, see if they can do the first two quite quickly. On the third one, I might just say, you guys go and do it. 
see mm. what you could do. Um, and now people may be shouting down the, uh, listening to this just now saying, oh, that's discovery learning. No, it's not. It's, it's actually giving people's credibility for the fact that every one of them is capable of learning. Every one of them has inductive reasoning uh, abilities. They can, they can make logical leaps themselves. We don't need to tell them absolutely everything. If we get them started and get the ball rolling, um, they can then make these leaps themselves, even even as I say, the perceived weaker pupils. Um, some other changes I suppose I've made. Um, I was falling away from doing starters, um, and most of what I've kind of the conversations I've had with Mark and some of the reading I've been doing is kind of. Uh, can convince me of that that I'm probably when I go back I won't I won't be doing starters anymore. Um, can I just I, 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 I laugh I laugh to pick you up on this because again me and Mark we, we, yeah. by the time people listen to this they'll, they'll have hopefully heard my interview with with Mark McCourt and we have a bit of an argument when it when it comes to starters. So um, yeah. just, just talk to me about this. How, how have you how have you been convinced that that starters aren't necessarily a good idea? Then then maybe I'll come back at you with this one. Right, well, there's two things going on here, okay? <laughs> You're giving them starter questions. They can either do the questions or they can't. Yes. If they can do the questions, why are you giving them the questions? And if they can't, what are you going to do about it at that moment in time? Now, if you've been very effective and if they're short enough questions, then you might be able to react there and then. But more likely what I would have done in the past is made a note of right, that was an error, that was an error, that was an error, and then maybe go back later in a week and try and tie that together and address issues that have been coming up in the starters. But I kind of feel that <laughs> a lot of the time, because starters are only made to take five or ten minutes, but like in my last school, my kids come in, pardon me, my kids come in late and what have mm. you. Sometimes it's 20 minutes out of the lesson and you're still on the starter. So that's a further the lesson going. And you've not actually done any new maths yet. You've not, you've not built on it. So a couple of tweaks I, I've been making is those, those mixed questions, which I know they've got, they've got value in terms of recall, the testing yeah. effect and all this sort of stuff. So I'm not, I'm not denying that. But <clears throat> we had a policy of every child, every night, homework, every year group. And it wasn't a lot for most of them, but we gave them something. And um, for me, the way I'd be doing that now, um, rather than it being on what they did today, it would be mixed. So mm. the stuff we'd be doing is part of Because doing stuff they've done today, well, they can still do it because they only did it today, or they can't do it because they didn't understand today, so it's sure. not helping them any. Whereas that time, with the, uh, the stuff we'd have done to start off, they can do at night. They can do four or five of those little short exercises over the week. The teacher can have a glance at those and then plan, right, I need to do an intervention on this or this, maybe with this subgroup of pupils or the whole class need to see this again and we can we can act on it there. Um, <clears throat> so I think either the, the, you can't do, I, I, I didn't feel I could ever make that much impact with them in that sense, although I do want kids keeping skills ticking over, which is why I'd say the nightly homework idea um, was there. But the other thing is, people talk about it, and I'm sure Mark said this, about being interleaving. Mm. Um, and the conversation he and I have a lot is, that, well, what lesson starters do is they, if you, they, they break up the learning episodes, they interrupt the flow. So if you think about it, um, maybe seven or eight lessons as this episode, and you're dropping these wee, these wee bombs of, le- of lesson starters in uh, every hour, and you're taking up a third of the time, then that's disrupting the flow, and it's, because, to be honest with you, starters are kind of um, low threshold most of the time. 
uh, most of the time I've seen them used. Um, and it's like, well, you see the, the hard stuff, the deep thinking, you should be doing that where you've got a teacher nearby to support mm-hmm. and see if it's trivial stuff, do that at home. Uh, where where you've not got the support uh, around about you. Um, <coughs> so thinking about it in, that, in, in those kind of senses as well um, would 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 kind of be what my take on it at the moment. But I'd be interested to hear uh, hear your thinking on it. It's, it's it's a fascinating one. I've 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 had a couple of again like like you, Chris. I'm changing my mind all the time on on numerous things, and I, I'm I'm getting to the point now where I'm I'm sick of speaking to people because I just get something straight in my head, and then somebody, <laughs> somebody drops another curveball in there. So um, I took one one thing that's really influenced my thinking on this is when I interviewed Naveen um, Naveen Rizvi for for the podcast, and she said we were talking about um kind of uh, starters to a sense, but more kind of low stakes quizzes and, and quizzing in the classroom, which I'm a big fan of. And she said that a lot of the um, questions that she used to ask, that she used to put in her quizzes, were too easy. And she said she reckons that teachers, as a general rule, um, when they do quizzing, tend to ask too easy questions. And that, that kind of backs up what you're saying there, that if you've got the teacher in the room, which is, uh, you know, where I, you know, possibly this makes us sound like arrogant teachers, but we're one of the most valuable learning resources a child's got, an experienced teacher in the room. You don't want to be asking yeah. them the basic skill questions that they could either try themselves and probably even look up the answer themselves, to be honest with you, um, um, at home or wherever. So what we want to be doing in the classroom is is quizzing them on the more challenging stuff. And, and what I've started mm-hmm. doing now, so I, I do a low stakes quiz, two lessons a week, and it will take up... In total, you're looking at 50 minutes um, uh, uh, split over two, split over two periods, maybe, maybe kind of 20 minutes, 25 minutes um, a, a lesson will be spent on the kids answering the questions and uh, me modeling the solutions and so on and so forth. But what what to, to kind of justify the amount of curriculum time that that takes up, what I'm ensuring I'm doing there is I, I'm not asking kind of quizzes that I expect kids to be getting kind of eights out of tens, nine out of tens and tens out of ten. Because the problem with that mm-hmm. is, as you say, why why am I asking them to do it if they can already do it? Sure, they're getting a bit of retrieval and sure, um, I'm getting... A, um, at least I've got evidence that they can do it. But what I'm what I'm doing now instead is I'm trying to pitch these quizzes. So I'm expecting kids to get around about five out of ten, six out of ten. Because what that means is that they they still get they, this kind of retrieval opportunity. But what also happens is when they finish the quiz and I put up project up the full work solutions, it's not the case that they just casually go through tick tick cross cross kind of an autopilot. They, then they have to start thinking even harder because whoa wait a minute I've actually got five of these questions wrong now i need to figure out where the hell i've gone wrong and if i can't figure it out from the work solutions then i'm going to ask sir and so on and so forth so for mm-hmm. me for me ramping up the demand of these retrieval opportunities i think is a valuable thing to do within within the lesson um, and i don't buy into the argument that it disrupts the learning episode because i would argue that you know, just going from French to math disrupts the learning episode or going to sleep disrupts disrupts the learning episode. It's not as if well, you're in you're doing eight hours straight throughout this learning episode. So I think it's perfectly valuable and a perfectly valid use of curriculum time to do more challenging retrieval opportunities to tap into the testing effect, to tap into the spacing effect with the teacher there to help support the students. But what, what do you make of that? Um, yeah, it's hard to disagree with what you're saying. There's a couple of things I pick up on it. Um, 
the, the quizzing thing, like I would do um, with my exam classes, for instance, I would, I'm notorious for doing my Friday quiz. So <laughs> right. this is this is like something which would be like <coughs> uh, part of my own practice as well. But I wouldn't be doing a starter every day. So we would have yes. on the Friday with a Friday quiz. And it would basically be, it'd be, I'd be writing it each week for them based upon how they'd done in previous quizzes, stuff that I picked up in lessons and so on, or from homework that wasn't good enough. And again, it would be pitched high so that they were getting it wrong. But I would tend, um, because I didn't really think, um, I, I didn't want to just tell them the solutions to this. What I would do is I'd make them all do it, and then I'd put up the answers only and say, tick across. Then I would get a sense of who did and who didn't get it. Yes. Right. And, that would, that, and I would make a spreadsheet with that, and I, I could use that later. Then I would tell them to pair up to work together. Then I'd say, take your and go into fours and now get a complete solution and at that point I would then give out a handwritten solution to each of the questions okay. which they would then they would then use to kind of verify that what they'd done was correct and what have you so it's given them that opportunity to talk about it to articulate a thinking um, and it's a change of voice because listening to me all the time is not going to um, well I don't think it's particularly inspiring for them if it's just hearing <laughs> me all the time telling them you're wrong here's what you should have done it's that, it's that sense of well other kids in the class can do this and it's <clears throat> um, understanding that well, okay, this isn't beyond me because if he can do it, I can do it, and, and that kind of that that atmosphere in there. Um, the other thing is like, I I am not I'm not against any of that stuff you were saying in terms of the the, the quizzing. Um, I think one of the things that is in my head at the moment is part of our um, curriculum planning. Um, is this idea of have, using the interleaving effect, using the testing effect, but at, at deliberate times, um, and again, I'm shamelessly stealing something Mark has talked about as well, and it's this idea, if you've been teaching, for instance, trigonometry, uh, and you've come to the end of it, and it's very much, it's very similar to like your SSDD problems. Yeah. When you've been teaching trigonometry, at the end of that, you might want to give them an interleaved worksheet, maybe with more than just four questions, so something bigger, mm. and you'd have some of that trig stuff in it. Some of it would be obvious, some of it would be in context, but also in there would be other stuff. It might be hard context Pythagoras, it might be uh, skills which are related to trig, like ratio, it might be some algebra work with algebraic fractions. Um, there might be angle stuff, <laughs> angles and triangles with external angles and what have you. So there'll be some stuff in there which might have the same surface, which you need to discriminate from what they're doing. But also there may be some deeper questioning on these prerequisite topics uh, and other things that they've maybe done built into that. So, but I'd maybe be using that deliberately. So mm. I, again, I, I'm quite big on the quizzing as well. Um, I, I buy into it, um, but I've, I've tended to keep it to once a week. Um, yes. Because I'm all I'm always just thinking about how can how can I get them onto these higher lofty aspirations of this behaving mathematically, because it's hard enough uh, to get kids to master procedures and then to understand the, the concepts. So then for this this next part. Um, squeezing all that in, um, I think it's difficult. So um, <clears throat> it's just it's just a decision, I suppose. That um, what, 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 I, I think both you and I are at the same sort of stage here, but we're still kind of coming to terms with 
um, how to put all this together and you seem to have settled on uh, twice a week and what have you and it seems to be working for you so I'm not going to argue against that in any way um, <laughs> just, put, just putting this other line of thinking there I suppose um, in, in terms of starters as well it's not to say there's never a starter there's other times where I think a starter is quite important if you're starting a new topic then my starter is going to be a pre-teaching diagnostic mm. of well here's some stuff I think you should know now, perhaps actually, rather than a starter, I'd be doing that as a finisher, a plenary, in one of the previous lessons. So I've got a couple of days before we start a new topic to react to this. So if the stuff mm. that they can't do, I'd then maybe take a day out or two days out um, to kind of fix that prerequisite stuff for those who need it, do extension for those who don't, before beginning this new learning episode. Yes. And the other thing um, would perhaps be as a prompt, um, <clears throat> because depending where we are and what we're doing um, it might be that the starter is just a question on the board or some statement or some fact and um, the pupils get an opportunity to think about that to inquire about it, to conjecture about it I would tend probably not to do that right at the beginning so let's say it was a topic of um, so solving equations so I probably wouldn't be doing that right at the beginning of solving equations but see if there's maybe eight lessons of solving equations by lesson six or seven they have enough knowledge that everything else you're going to teach them is just kind of a follow-on from that. And if you've been teaching them principles as opposed to procedures, if you get that distinction, mm. like actually what's going on, how you do this, uh, then I think quite often they're able to just take that statement or this uh, this question you've given them in the starter and then and then run with that as a start of that next part of the the sequence. Got it. Got it. Fascinating, this, Chris. And let me just, before we move on to kind of specific task design, um, let me just ask you one more thing about uh, features in your lesson. And the reason I want to ask you about what your example problem pairs look like. And the reason I want to ask you this is um, I have kind of a very definite way that I do these now. But I've been very fortunate this year having a sabbatical from my job. I've been able to visit lots of other schools and, and watch lessons and speak to teachers. Um, I'm very much aware that there's lots of different varieties in how teachers do example problem pairs even though we're all kind of calling them the same thing and listeners if you haven't checked out my interview with Michael Pershin that I um, I recorded which will probably be the episode before before this one that you're listening to so it'll be available now he blew my mind with how he does example problem pairs so Chris just again as much detail as you like what what do you, what does your example problem pair process look like um, so when, when I'm using example problem pairs, um, I think I've experimented with silent teacher, I have, um, and I found that to be, well, I've perceived it to be perhaps more successful with um, older kids. Mm. With the younger kids, um, I, I've had to help them focus their attention, um, maybe just with the nature of some of the classes I've had the past couple of years, I don't know. So <clears throat> just like I've watched you model it before, I'm going through one, but I'm not talking over the top of it as I do it, but I'm going to write a line, I'm watching them copy the line, and then I'll discuss that line. Then I'll do, uh, if you get what I'm saying, then we can go through mm, it like yes. that. But I'm conscious of not just talk over the top of it, but make sure they're listening when I'm talking, making sure that I've got eye contact with each line, then I'd ask them to do one, and then we'd repeat the sequence a few times uh, going through it. However, like I said to you earlier on, one of the things I've been looking at, <coughs> pardon me, um, a bit more is this idea of backwards fading mm. um, and I don't know 
I don't know if Emmy's spoken about that. Uh, in any they have, they have a little, but I'm always fascinated to hear diff- different takes. So go on, d- t- tell me how you, <coughs> how, what what do you perceive it to mean, and how do you how do you incorporate it, Chris? Well, well I'm going to use trigger again because I might have said I like it. Um, <laughs> let's see, what, let's see, what we're doing um, a trigger equation, and you were using one of the the double angle formulae in there. So you've got sine two x or cos two x, and there right. you've got to make a substitution, right? So all that working is, first of all, you're making your substitution. Then you're rearranging and tidying it up equal to zero. Then you're factorizing. And then you're getting two different uh, equations equal to zero. And then you're solving each of these trig equations mm-hmm. uh, individually. Now, if you're doing that top line, that bit, which is a uh, sine 2x minus cos x, for instance, or whatever, <coughs> that's the new bit. So they need to talk about that bit. Well, how do you know when, particularly if it's a cos 2x, it's like, well, what substitution do I use here? Do I use, do I use 2 cos squared x minus 1, or do I use 1 minus 2 sine squared x? Which substitution do I use when? So that's a bit they need more teaching on. Where I see by the bottom of the, by the, bottom of the example, like solving those two simple linear uh, trig equations, like they can already do that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing this, this topic uh, today. They wouldn't be doing this lesson. <clears throat> so what I would do is I'd work out one in full and I'd let them work out one I'd give them one um, yes. and what I'd do is I would only have the bottom the bottom line missing right and then what I would do next um, so I'd, I'd work out the first four lines and they'd do the fifth then I would do right. I'd work out the first three lines and they'd do the bottom two then I would do the first two lines they'd do the bottom three and then I'd only have the first line so what <clears throat> what's happening here is sometimes that can actually speed it up a little bit, um, so you're not having to do as much back and forth, back and forth. <coughs> but what they're getting, um, they're getting a lot of direct teaching on that new bit, the bit, the decision-making process, the bit that's unfamiliar to them, is the bit where you're at, they're getting more examples on it. And what they're practicing then is they go through this. It's, it's, it's building up, so they're getting more confidence because actually... The stuff further down the question is the easier bits. Because a lot of maths is like that. Like you start with something complicated and then it reveals down and each line you go down, oh, this is actually now a problem from third year. Or oh, this is now a second year mm, question. Yes, yes, yes. First year, each line is a simplified version. <coughs> what, what we tend to do after that, though, is I'd then give them maybe four or five questions to do in its entirety. I'd give them a short kind of drill on that. Um to then ensure that they could kind of do it. As I say, though, that, that's something which is relatively recent, and it's been a way of kind of been experimenting with it. But I know in terms of some of the studies on that, um, the effects, the, the, the impact, the effect sizes of it have actually been more positive than just normal um, example problem pairs, I, which yeah, is why... I think so. And can I just... Sorry to interrupt you, Chris. Can I just ask, just on a practical level there, um, is it still... An example problem pair in the sense that when you do it first and say you do four lines and leave out the fifth line, do students still then have a problem to complete on on the right hand side of the board or wherever it is? Or is it enough for them just to complete the fifth line, if that makes sense? Is, are they always paired up, these these backwards fading with a yes, complete, yeah. com- right, I see. So when you're, when you then leave out the bottom two lines, there's still then another complete one for them to do, if, if that makes sense. Ah, okay, right. So I'd maybe have five questions total here. And the first one, I would just do it all. 
Then yes. the next one I would do the first four ones, then next three, next two, so they wouldn't be paired. They're which not is paired, why I see. No, which is why I'm suggesting we have maybe four or five questions after this, which they do in the entirety. Got it. Um, Got it. And that's, that's interesting. I'd maybe do, I'd maybe do many whiteboard doors. So <laughs> that's an interpretation of it. I'm not saying it's, it's um, the, the definitive way at all. Um, no, it's fascinating. Something. No, it's it's fascinating. And again, that's what I'm because I, I, again, I've I've read the research on on the backwards fading as well. And I, it's just I'm always fascinated about practically what does that look like in the classroom mm. and how do people find that works. Now that's something I'll definitely I'll definitely mull over. And um, well, if it's all right with you, Chris, we we might turn to the kind of the main thrust of of what I wanted to to talk to you about, which is which is task design. And I know um, that you're working on a book currently with with Mark McCourt about task design. I know that from following you on Twitter, I think you're you're one of, and I've said this on the podcast before, you're one of the best um, users of Twitter I've ever seen in the sense that you will you will create an activity or a task and you'll just throw it out there on Twitter and you will copy in people who have radically different views. So you'll you'll copy into the mix. You've, you'll copy in Mike Ollerton. You'll copy in Chris Bolton. You'll crop, crop, copy me in and Watson. And you'll just say, well, what do people think of this? And you'll get some really useful suggestions. So I'm, I'm fascinated by task design. It's something that I'm really thinking hard at at the moment, whether it's through my variation theory, whether it's my kind of fill in the gap activities, SSDD, maths, vens, whatever it is. I'm, I'm really interested in the thought process that goes into into task design so i wanted to kind of get the ball rolling chris what um what did your approach to task design used to look like before you started researching and thinking really about it how would you create or choose tasks in the past (coughs) well (coughs) pardon me (coughs) apologies um shamefully um, it's 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 that it's that evolution over time, isn't it? And yes. um, you know, I've, I've talked about procedures, then concepts, and then behaviours. But that's how I'm thinking about teaching now. Well, at the beginning, I was thinking about procedures. Then, a bit later, I was thinking about procedures and concepts. And now it's procedures, be- uh, concepts, and mathematical behaviours. Mm. So, as I've evolved as a teacher, the sort of tasks I've asked pupils to do has evolved. <clears throat> so initially, <coughs> you're looking for good uh, worksheets where they get to practice the stuff, yes. and you're looking for uh, well well sequenced questions with a nice kind of gradient of uh, increase in difficulty in there. You're looking for all that, <coughs> um, and then perhaps I'd be looking for something which back then was engaging for them, um, mm. but maybe not necessarily actually adding that much more value so i think i used to get caught out and, and john mason talks a lot about this the inner task versus the outer task and that is the outer task is what to ask the pupil to actually do the inner task is what are they going to think about when they're doing this mm. <coughs> and what potential mathematical activity what potential learning is going to come of it and a lot of stuff in the past i know i look back on it now random things i've maybe downloaded from the test or whatever <laughs> yep. They they just didn't do it. Um, they weren't advancing it. It was just it was just another worksheet dressed up in fancy clothes. It wasn't actually moving forward to a conceptual understanding at all. Um, <coughs> <coughs> pardon me. So then that's when 
you begin to think about stuff like um, the standards units, uh, some of the Malcolm Swan stuff. When I look at some of the stuff in Don Stewart's website, these are these are then that next kind of level up, um, which you begin to incorporate stuff of that ilk. Um, and then more recently, then it's it's then looking at tasks, which I suppose give an opportunity um, for pupils to elevate themselves mathematically above even that. Um, so it's not just pure application, it's actually inquiry, um, which I know, well, I've just been talking about the power of direct instruction a moment ago, but I'm actually saying, well, there's still a place for inquiry here. Inquiry with an I, as opposed to inquiry with an E. Inquiry with an E, i.e. asking questions and making conjectures and thinking about stuff as we go through it is fine. But as inquiry, like thinking into something to get new insight into it, um, is something which is, is I think is quite hard to do. And it's a very difficult pedagogical kind of skill to, to build a classroom where that's a culture and uh, pupils are doing that sort of work. Um, but I think at a certain point in a learning episode, it has a place. Um, so looking at that, so task design before, anyways, I say, it would, it would involve basically, a lot of the time it was just generating worksheets because I'd look at all the Scottish textbooks I had and I'd be like, well, none of these treat logarithms properly. None of them have a good, have a good sequence. And sometimes my task design would be go to the photocopier with four or five different textbooks, taking question one from that book, question four from yes. that book, question six from that book and making a sheet. And that's quite a good sheet. But it's like that, but again, that was just to get sufficient practice of the skill. That wasn't high level stuff. Um, <clears throat> and then occasionally you begin to work on matching tasks and things like this. But that the, the extent of my task design in the past, maybe until uh, four or five years ago, wasn't I wouldn't say anything great. I was just I just used what I could find. Um, and we there were some nice textbooks we had, which were the maths in action. Uh, secondary one and two books um, S1 cubed and S2 cubed in Scotland and um, those had lots of nice challenge questions in them and they, they, a lot of proof and a lot of stuff like this <coughs> and it was quite quite demanding so I, I often found those those were good but they didn't have enough like, kind of practice for the kids so you end up having to go and supplement it with other things mm. So that was, that was that was kind of what it was before, and I suppose that was similar to a lot of people um, at, at that stage. Well, I hope it was, and I wasn't terrible, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, you're you're right, and again, if I uh, it, my approach to kind of uh, choosing tasks was was exactly that. It'd be go on the TES, find a five star resource, and just try and like look at what I'm teaching, find a five star resource, and that was the activity I was going to use. And I tell you what, yeah. even worse than you, Chris. More often than not, I wouldn't even do it myself beforehand. And I think this is this is one of the biggest things I've learned. And um, whether it's an an access, whether it's a, a series of questions, um, whether they're you know varied or not, or whether it's a, an, a rich so-called rich task or whatever. If you don't do it yourself before, you are asking for absolute trouble um, in, in the oh, classrooms. Yeah. It's just, mm -hmm. and again, it's so obvious, it's so obvious to say, but I just didn't do it. It was part of my lesson planning process wasn't actually doing the activity that I was going to give the kids. And it's his classic curse of knowledge thing. Sometimes I'd be so cocky to think that I could just glance at an activity or a series of questions and judge within five seconds whether there was any twists or turns, whether it was going to be appropriate and so on. And, 
so you can you can get a certain amount of information from that but it's only when you sit down and do a task or a sequence of questions oh, yeah. do, you, do you get to uncover some of these potential sticks of dynamite that are lurking there that are going to blow things up unless you, you you can anticipate them is that something is that a mistake you made as well chris not, not actually doing oh, activities tons of times tons of times <laughs> yeah, oh, uh, i remember the best advice i got as a student teacher was i was teaching a higher maths class and they said, make sure you've done all the exercises before you do it, before you come in and teach it. And mm. I did that as a student. But then when I was actually teaching the course, it's like, well, no one's making me do that. So <laughs> now, I know tons of people who would do that. <coughs> but I was fairly confident with my staff. I thought, I'll be yes. able to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. But, but it wasn't about me being able to do it. It was about making mm. sure I had prepared them for every question. Yes. And it's amazing to begin with the subtleties that, um, it might be a, a, an exercise on uh, a simple kind of polynomial curve sketching where they're going to do nature tables and differentiate and all this sort of stuff. But what, what they get stuck at is perhaps the the factorising to find where it cuts the x-axis mm. because it looked a bit different from all the others. I'm like, well, what's going on here? How? <laughs> and if I'd sat down and actually just worked through some of them, oh, yeah, I'll need to make sure I've got an example like that because I wouldn't have seen one like that for a while. So I get caught out like that sometimes. Um, so I kind of made more of an effort. So later on in my career, when I started teaching advanced hire, um, which is like an A-level type thing, um, I kind of made sure I was sitting down doing exercises because I thought, I'm not getting, I'm not getting caught out like that again. Um, it was pretty poor. <coughs> the other place was... <coughs> I've always been quite a fan of UKMT type questions. Yes. And I would use a lot of those. And if I put those up, I'd glance at it and I think, oh, this is only the intermediate challenge. I'll be able to do it. Well, <laughs> I'll be honest. If you go to question 25 on the intermediate challenge on any given year, I'd be damned mm. if anyone can do it in a couple of minutes. Oh, they correct. always require a bit of thinking. Um, and yeah, I, I got myself caught out a couple of times with that. Then, then you have to remodel the lesson into this is a problem we'll continue working on this over the coming days as a class <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> dig yourself out of it somehow but oh, yeah hopeless well I'm glad. Well, I, I, I'm glad we can both uh, kind of revel in our own uh, mistakes there, Chris. That's good to know. Well, um, I've, I've loads of questions, more questions about task design, but I think the, probably the most useful thing to do here is, is is to look at some that you've chosen because I guess with task design, there's, there's two options that teachers have got. One is that they create their own from scratch, and this has obviously got advantages and disadvantages. And perhaps the more common way is that they take um, an existing task that's out there and either use it as it is or start to kind of tweak it and what's been brilliant and, and listeners can can access this from the show notes is that you've sent through three tasks the first of which you've designed the second of which is from john mason and the third of which is is from m rich so um i think probably the most useful thing if it's all right with you chris is is you, if you could take us through these tasks in terms of starting with the first one how you put it together what purpose it serves and so on and so forth and and crucially how 
it addresses some of those key aims that, that, that you mentioned before when, when you talked about planning your sequences of lessons, how it's going to get this kind of generalization and, and all this side of things. And I, I'll probably interrupt you at, at various points and, and take us off on, on different tangents. And again, just one more for, for the listeners. You can access these tasks from, from the from the uh, podcast show notes. So the first one, Chris, is called, um, well, has it, have, you, have you given it a name? Perhaps you need to name nah. this one. Has it, has it got no name? It's just okay. <laughs> Algebraic fractions. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Algebraic fractions. All right. Talk us, talk us through the kind of genesis of, the, of this task. Okay. Um, well, this is this is a quintessential example of a topic where you teach it, they perform, you think it's going well, and then they continue to make all the, the same mistakes as if they haven't been taught it. Mm. Um, so we're talking here about the simplification of algebraic fractions. Okay. And the sheet begin. Now, basically, what I've what I found, um, and I'm sure it's a common experience, is you want pupils to realise the, num- the, the term has to be a factor of both the numerator and denominator before you can divide through by it, uh, before you can simplify. And we should say that we're not we're not we're not talking here. Um, you, the way you've set this up, we've got kind of two space for two terms on the top and one term on the bottom. So we're not talking yeah. a kind of quadratic factorization, tops and bottoms mm-hmm. and, and double brackets. This is kind of almost kind of single term simplification. Would, the, would that be fair? Yeah, that'd be fair. Yeah. Got um, it. Got it. Yeah. So, go the, the common mistake you see is the the to use uh, the the wrong terminology, they cancel out one X from the top and a single, then the X from the bottom and then there's an X left floating about in space somewhere. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So it's a typical lesson whereby you've been doing your formative assessment, many whiteboards, you've watched them do it. At the time of teaching, they can do it, but later on, it just doesn't seem to have internalised for whatever reason for some pupils. So the way I kind of go about <clears throat> a lot of tasks now are a result of something that I see pupils not doing well or um, some misconception. It's about addressing that and tackling it head on and really making them think round about that. Because what I've realised over the years is see me standing there telling them again and again and doing more examples and then giving them another sheet of 50 of those to do, it doesn't fix it most of the time. And it's a highly ineffective use of like, valuable class time. Yes. So with this task, what I've done is I've given them six terms and I've said, okay, given this configuration of an addition of two of them on the on the numerator and a single term in the denominator, can you select from these six terms to create expressions which can be simplified? Mm. So immediately they're having to think about, well, well what what would what would allow us to simplify? What would not allow us to simplify? What what are the what are the extreme cases? What are the limits? What are the bounds of this of this idea? Mm. So that then becomes the focus. Rather than doing the simplification, which becomes this trivial, pull that X to the front, put a line through it stuff, they're actually thinking about um when and where can I do this? Similarly the next part of the question is um using those same terms, create some expressions that cannot be simplified. Mm. <coughs> What I've done next then is there's two more and I've said, okay, you're getting free for all here. Using any terms you want, create four expressions of this form that can be simplified. And then using any terms you want, create four expressions that cannot be simplified. Now, that's a starting point. 
And that's what I've called my little website where I host these. It's a starting point. It doesn't mean that's the task and it's done. Yes. It might be how you use this and where you go with it. And it's, whenever I'm thinking about tasks, I'm always thinking about how can I extend this? What other mathematical activity can I, can I get out of it? And it might be a simple follow-up is create me a fraction which looks as if it simplifies but doesn't. And it's just that way that they're trying to then create ones that will trick each other. And what I might yes. do with those is I'll maybe take those ones and I'll throw those in the homework because if they can do those ones, then I can know that actually this is this has served a purpose. Um, so, so the idea here, anyway, as I say, is is mainly focused upon are we thinking about the key concept? Are we are we are we into that? Now, as part of this, as I say, there's learner generation going on. Um, mm. because we've got that we've got that free for all and the generation effect which is from cognitive science but is equally something which um, people at the likes of the ATM have been talking about for years Yes, it's, it's people on other sides are both shouting the same message but not hearing <laughs> each other um, it's weird this is something um, very powerful because it's, it's got there's all sorts of studies that suggest the, the impact of learning that by having to generate it yourself um, you're going to deepen the understanding, the learning, the retention, that kind of thing. <coughs> and the other thing in here as well, it's that, that trial and error. Like you're you're having to um, you're having to structure things together, and then you're having to classify as well. Like you're having to classify well, classify well. These ones do, and these ones don't. What what have all the ones that do simplify got in common? What have all the ones that don't mm. simplify common? Um, and then then of, of course they've got to verify that. They've got to justify it. Uh, by by actually trying the simplifications, or or refuting it, because if it's if they said this cannot be simplified, but then they are able to do it, then there's that going on. And in the mix of all this, they are still practicing the procedure, so they're yes. doing all of that, but they're thinking about the key thing as well, um, which is the sort of thing that I quite like. There's um, there's an amazing book um, kicking about at the moment uh, called Practicing Mathematics um, yes. from the ACN. And That's, it's from it's that Dave Hewitt and Tom Franco. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. Yeah, and it's got a lot, a lot of really nice tasks, which I think this one is similar in that ilk, whereby yeah, you're doing the stuff, but you're focusing on the idea while you're doing the stuff. Um, if that makes sense. It does. It makes perfect. And I think it's an absolutely brilliant task, Chris. And um, a couple of observations about it. One thing I, I, I really, really like is, is, is that final line you've got in there. So when, when students are trying to create expressions in the form that cannot be simplified, you challenge them to try and make them so that somebody might think they can be simplified. And the addition of that extra line just has the potential to generate so much more kind of deeper hard thinking because it's his students are essentially trying to expose misconceptions in other students and and what better way to show your understanding than than to show you're aware of misconceptions so i think that's that's absolutely fantastic um i like the structure of it as well there's i I think a mistake i made early on in my teaching was believing there was kind of two types of, of activities the kind of practice questions that were kind of good for fluency and then the rich open-ended tasks that were good for kind of problem solving or conceptual understanding or whatever label we want to put on it but it's activities like these uh, it's activities like these and i think colin foster's great at this with his mathematical etudes yeah practicing mathematics book that show that there's possibility to do kind of get the best of both worlds to get that practice that's so important but get it in a way that learners can't just cruise through on autopilot they're having these opportunities to conjecture and generalize i think it's 
fantastic. Um, and the final thing I just wanted to say, and this was, um, I mentioned this on the on my conference takeaway, I think it was day one from the ATMMA conference that I've just come back from. A conversation I had with Colin Foster when we were talking about Malcolm Swan and how he would, if you were to take a task or an activity that you'd written and show it to Malcolm Swan, what he would do is he, he would hone in on a particular choice of number and say, for example, why have you chosen the number four there? And like the person who showed the task would say, well, oh, sorry, what, what should I have put? And Malcolm would say, oh, no, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but but why have you chosen it? And why? for why? me, uh, for me, what I think, what, what I'm intrigued with by this, and I'm going to try, <laughs> this is about as close to the late, great Malcolm Swan as I'll ever get, is um, he, obviously a key part of this task is your choice of the algebraic terms that students play with. So you've chosen six here, which are 4x2, I think it's x cubed, y 8x squared and 9 and as i say listeners can access these um i assume they were chosen for a specific reason and i wonder if you could just share with us what were some of your thinking behind choosing those particular um terms yeah well the reason i specified terms at all was to narrow it down because i think it's that uh, john mason again talks about freedom and constraint and I think before you get freedom, you have to have some sort of constraint on it to ensure that, that, that it's purposeful. It's, it's not about being completely open-ended from the beginning. And the, the constraint of, I know from this limited selection here, there are some obvious ones which are possible and some obvious ones which are not possible. Mm. That's why there's a why in there, like a rogue why. It's very easy to use that and get some that, that don't work. Yes. Um, s- similarly, um, You'll notice quite a few of the numbers are a factor of uh, a multiple of two. Mm. Um, there's terms in there which are to do with x, and then there's a nine on its own. So th- these ones are very what to some again this uh, you've got the curse of knowledge. But like, for me, looking at those, I thought those would be ones which are very trivial for a kid to to work with and produce like examples and non-examples with. Then you're going on and you've got that freedom later on for them to come up with their own set of terms from which to select to generate. If that makes sense anyway. Yeah, it does make makes perfect sense. And I guess it's one of those those tasks that when you do it, if you're anything like me when I when I write a, a task or an activity, every time I try it with kids, um I'll t- well not every time, but most times I try it, I'll I'll make a tweak as a result of it because I'll find oh, yeah, that something definitely. something doesn't work or something. It, kids actually um come up with an idea themselves. So those six those six terms, they'd be easy to change, wouldn't they? Like and you may tweak oh, those yeah, yeah. with different classes as as you go through. Well, that that was fascinating, that Chris. That was fascinating insight into into the, um, the the origins of a task, and obviously we'll put a link to to, to your wonderful website where where you share these. Um, I wonder if we can move on now to, um, to to your second one. So this is one you've chosen, and this is from from John Mason, who of course has been on the podcast with with, with Anne Watson, and one of the, the the legends of mathematics education, and one of probably the the best task designers to to have ever have lived. Um, talk talk us through this one because th- this is one of my favorite. And what I'm intrigued by is, is why you chose this, Chris, and, and crucially, how how would you use it in the classroom? Um, okay, for the benefit of listeners, this one is um, it's a less, same, more problem. So we've got a, a three by three grid set up, and it, along the top we've got perimeter, and down the, the side we've got area, and in the middle there's a shape given. And directly above that, for instance, pupils have to come up with another shape, which is the same perimeter but a greater area. Below that, they have to come up with a shape which is at the same perimeter but a smaller area. 
and similar kind of things in the other boxes. Now, this task here for me is very powerful because it's, are pupils ever going to be asked this question in an exam? No. Um, however, what's going on here is, again, what they're thinking about is the idea of perimeter and the idea of area. Mm. Far, far too many times in the past, um, you, you teach area is lifetime spread and perimeters at up all the sides. And for particularly weaker pupils, it's like, is that an ad or a times? And that's the question you'll get asked. This question. <coughs> <laughs> <coughs> and it's about getting them to distinguish, well, actually, it's not as simple as adding times. And really want you to think about this. And I had a class a few years ago where they could do a sheet of area, a sheet on area, they could do a sheet on perimeter. But if I gave them mixed stuff, they were just getting confused. And I kind of feel as if they don't understand, they're not thinking about the thing that I want them to think about. So this little task here, and John has got a, an applet you can use, you can put it up uh, on your smart board and you can actually interact with it live. Um, a, it's got all threshold, so people inclined to engage with it and then when they're doing it it's then you get this thing about oh look at my solution look at my solution so they end up comparing with each other and it's <coughs> these additional um, constraints you can put on it as well like okay who can come up with one which has got more area and more perimeter um, who can come up with one that's got less area or less perimeter um, but then you can say okay who can do this using this number of blocks who can do this using that number of blocks you can add that one for challenge but again it, it's, about, it's about the relationship and I think this task here um, it's, it's a template which you can then use to generate other tasks so you've got these two mathematical objects which are related to each other and, I, um, and you can go on and you can use that in different ways um, you can go on and use it for gradient and y-intercept, where you've got a graph in the middle. Give me one with a bigger gradient, but a smaller y-intercept, for instance. Mm. Um, you've, you can have it for fractions, where it's numerator and denominator. <coughs> a whole host of different things. And I think I've shared a couple of those on the site. Um, and, and just on that, that's <laughs> important, I find, Chris, isn't it? That when you, what you don't want to spend time doing is, is is trying to explain to students the structure of tasks over and over and over again. Whereas when you come yeah. up with something like this, with left say more, or I do the similar things with either the uh, variation, fill in the gaps, or the SSDD mm -hmm. stuff, or the math vens, once you've done one of those tasks and kids are happy with the structure, then it's a case of saying, okay, we're doing a, another less say more. And then their, all their thoughts are on the actual content as opposed to just yes. think about the show. And that's important, isn't it, I think? I think so. I think that's one of the benefits. Look, advice I give to anyone who's starting out thinking about writing tasks is to use templates. Like the SSDD, yes. the math friends are excellent. Same less, more. Structured variation grids. <coughs> uh, we've got horizontal and vertical mm -hmm. uh, arrays of uh, calculations. Um, arithmagons. Uh, using pyramids like Don Stewart uses quite a lot, uh, go free problems, open middle, all of these types of things um, can be simple ways for people to generate new tasks. Um, so you don't have, it's very hard, as you know, to come up with something like completely unique, completely new, but uh, which is of its own format. But using this type of stuff, you can. Um, and similarly, like 
going on and looking at other existing tasks and tweaking them. So those card sorts, multiple representation card sorts, like the type you get in the standards unit, you can take those and use them for different topics because those were intended as stimulus for teachers. Here is a way of going about this. You can do this for other topics yourself. Um, so I think that's that's one of the reasons I picked John's task was yeah that task in itself is amazing, but it's the, and the mathematical thinking that comes out of it is very good, but it's also the potential for generating other tasks mm. based upon this, which I think is um, is so nice about it. I, I completely agree. And, and can I just ask, um, where, where or, or when would you imagine using this? And the, and the reason I ask is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, your first task that we talked about, the algebraic fractions one, I would imagine myself using this after I'd done an example problem pair on how to simplify um, an algebraic fraction. I would teach the students that, and then it would be a case of, of using this task to give them that practice, but in a purposeful, interesting way. Um, so my first question is, is, would that be how you would use that first task? And then secondly, how would you envisage using the, the John Mason one? Yeah, the first task, that's pretty much how I'd use it. Uh, the when I wrote it originally, it was with a class who had been through the normal kind of teaching and then still were making the mistakes. So it was mm. with some time delay afterwards yes. we, we used it. Um, the John Mason one, again, I've used it various times because I think as John would say himself, the answer is always, it depends. Um, <laughs> yes. That is no best. That is no best, as he would famously say. Um, the best time to use it or the time I think I would use it, it, it really depends on the class that's in front of me. Um and I, I have used it at the at the beginning of a sequence of lessons where we're throwing area and perimeter together. Other times I've used it as an intervention with a single pupil, and it really it just depends upon where and what we're at. So mm. yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not very good at giving definitive answers. <clears throat> no, and no, and and no, no, nor should you be, because as you say, it completely depends. And um, my other question, and and this before we get on to to the third um, third task. And I, and I get this a lot, is, is I find that as, as we move through, so let's use the language of the learning episode. As we move through the learning episode, the way I kind of picture it is that the kind of teacher inputs or the structure um, is is more in the early stages of the learning episode and, and less in the, in the latter stages. So I would be using these, um, the, these kind of tasks towards the end of a learning episode. And my question to you here is, Chris, that obviously whenever you start doing learner-generated examples, as you have in, in, in both of the tasks that you've shared so far, a kind of practical difficulty is that um, kids will be coming up with different answers. Whereas earlier on in the learning episode, if you're using a very structured set of questions or an example problem pair, it's very easy for you as a teacher to check whether kids are right or wrong, or it's very easy for kids to, to check if you just give them access to the answers and so on but whenever we look at your first task and we've got these last two questions where it's kids coming up with their own or we look at um, the John Mason task where there's lots of possibilities for different right or wrong answers and um, just on a practical level how do you how do you decide whether kids have got it right or wrong I think this is the it's the mindset you have about all this stuff then isn't it because it's like Malcolm Swan wrote about it's moving from that kind of transmission approach of teaching to a kind of collaborative approach so how do I know they've got it right? Well, <laughs> if I'm using it like yourself later in the learning episode, they, they know between them, the class as a collective whole have that knowledge. Mm. So it's actually about giving them the opportunity to work together to check each other's in pairs, first of all, and then in groups and comparing again. And 
um, verifying with each other, arguing, uh, reasoning, all this kind of stuff. So those mathematical behaviours that I was talking about, they actually get those manifest themselves here in the defence of their work with each other. So there'd be an element of that. Other times, I'd be going round as well, I'd be having a look at it, and if there's anything sure. that's obviously glaringly a disaster, you'd be, you'd be prompting <laughs> and, and maybe giving them a, an indication that they might want to think about it again. Because I think that's one of the most important things, I'd say, as a teacher as well. Like, if you never move away from the front of the class, you, you, you have no idea what's going on out there. Mm. You, you, you need you need to... You need to be out there uh, and moving about. I wrote this in a blog about a year and a half ago that I was going to make a resolution never ever to sit down again at my computer when there were kids in the room. Yes. Um, because it's so easy to do when you're, you're snowed under and you've got tons of admin to do and you've got marking to do. And if they're working quietly on an exercise for 20 minutes, then let them go on with it. But actually, yes. there's so much opportunity there for you to begin out there because at any point in time, even in that class, who are maybe even if they're set by ability, there'll be some of those kids guaranteed for who this work is too easy, and you could be getting more out of them. And there'll be some mm. of the kids who aren't doing as well as it could be, and you could be helping them. So there's no there's no there's no reason whatsoever to not be out there and amongst them. And that doesn't mean causing a scene. It can still be hushed, it, or or it can yes. be taken a grip in. Like, right, okay, what are you thinking about this? I, I, I think it just depends again on um, the timing. So. That's, that's another little point I would add in with that. I can, yeah, I completely agree. And fa- absolutely fascinating, this, Chris. And l- let's turn to the final one then. So this is from Enrich. Now, I'm glad you've chosen an Enrich one because um, I, I've, I've got a really interesting relationship with Enrich activities in the sense that this was certainly something, um, Enrich was certainly something I was aware of when I first started teaching. It was It was the almost kind of the go-to thing but for a very specific purpose it tended to be used by me anyway for kind of extension material it was the stuff that you you gave kids to do who'd finished the 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 kind of proceed more procedural work that they'd done or it was kind of the last lesson that we do when we were about to move on to something else let's do an enrich activity and then whenever i started kind of doing all my reading and my research and so on and I moved more to the kind of explicit instruction and um, I definitely started using enrich um, activities less or I was certainly more selective of how I used them but of late and this is very very recent in fact because just um, well, three days ago from when we're recording this I was sat in an enrich workshop at the ATMLA conference and I think and I, I'm uh, correct me if I'm wrong here but these enrich activities certainly aren't just to be reserved for your high flyer top set kids they're certainly not just extension materials there's ways to use these which can get all learners kind of thinking mathematically and, and, and thinking deeper and it's it's down to the teacher to select the activities carefully and also mm-hmm. as you've demonstrated with the John Mason activity to have with them kind of questions to ask to 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 help kids develop and, and engage in this in this mathematical thinking anyway that was my kind of long ramble and um, to take us through this task but perhaps for First, Chris, what, what's been your kind of experience with Enrich? Was was that something that, that you too have been aware of for many, many years? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I think it's very similar. It was always there in the background, mm. and I'd go on it, and <coughs> sometimes I'd think, well, I don't know how I'm going to use that. Um, mm. I don't know how I'm going to get them to think about what we're doing today. I'll keep it for extension. And I think, I think that's been an issue over time. That I've not really had my head um, 
in that properly. Whereas now, I suppose, where I'm at in my thinking is about uh, promoting mathematical thinking, um, things have taken a turn. They have a they have a lovely little bit on there, um, which is a selection of short problems. So it's working mathematically short problems. Um, I don't know if you've been on that one before. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, and I quite like that because, again, it's talking about these kind of mathematical behaviours explicitly. So um, thinking strategically, exploring and noticing structure, uh, working systematically, posing questions and making conjectures. So as part of my kind of longer term planning, I'd be looking at, am I developing these skills in pupils? And it, sometimes it might be um, yeah, you're struggling to shoehorn in. Um, an opportunity, but there's often something on here which actually will will do the job. <coughs> the, the, this one here, the, the shape times shape, mm. is uh, one of my favourite tasks, which is why I've obviously selected it. Uh, <coughs> I've been using this for a number of years, and it's funny how you were talking about we'd use this as extension in the past, and so might I have. Um, mm. But as I said to somebody on Twitter last night, for the past few years, this has been my first lesson on the first day of secondary school for many kids. Wow. Nice. Um, because this task here eliminates so much. So for those people who don't know it, it's basically there's uh, coloured shapes and each of them stand for one of 11 numbers between 0 to 12. Each shape's a different number and the pupils have got to work out what they are. So for instance, the first statement, and I'm not going to go through them all, is a square. <laughs> Just a shape of a square. Not it doesn't necessarily mean a square number. A square times a square times a square makes a semicircle. Mm. Well, if you know about number structure, you're thinking a square times it something times some something times itself times itself. Hold on, that's mm. a cube. Mm. It's a cube number. What cube numbers have we got that are below twelve? Well, we've only got two options here. We've got eight and we've got one. Now, if it was one, it'd be one times one times one. So a square times a square times a square equals a square. But it's actually yes. a square times a square times a square. It gives me a semicircle, so it can't be one, it must be eight. So with this task, and then you've got you've got the <coughs> you've got the rule of one is an identity and zero uh, zero resulting in zero and what have you that like that in there as well. Um so this is quite a good task which I, I normally just throw out and let them get started on. And it gives me a sense of a, this kind of number sense, but also mm. pre-algebraic understanding, because um, a book I've been I've read recently was by Tony Gardner on a curriculum, and it was about this bridge between in England key stage two and key stage three, and how it is basically from the, the kind of numerical perspective on mathematics moving into the more formalised uh, idea of capturing these relationships. And in Scotland, obviously, it's the same. And this, and it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about recently, and I've shared a few tasks on it, is this how how algebra evolves from number. It's not a discrete topic. It's not something else. And algebra is a generalisation of number and number relationships. And it's, it's setting it up so that we don't do algebra as a topic of work which just appears. It's how can we, we, we develop this algebraic thinking this way of working, this idea of variable, <coughs> and tease it out over time, uh, such that when we do go into formalise the algebra, it, it makes sense, it's coherent, rather than kids seeing it basically as dis- disjointed squiggles and uh, notation, 
without really understanding the, the ideas behind it and what's going on. So I think this task uh, certainly helps with that. Um, with some classes, it's too hard. That and that, and they won't get started. And sometimes it takes actually going over with them and maybe working through one of the statements mm. and picking a key one, not picking an easy one, maybe picking, uh, there's one of them in there which is a square number and illustrating, okay, what two numbers could that be? That could be four or nine. Give them an opportunity to, or, or one, give them an opportunity to kind of give them a prompt. Now that's maybe not the best way of doing it, right? That's kind of doing it for them, isn't it? Um, and that's maybe somewhere for my own pedagogy needs to develop. So it's, again, um, thinking about the questioning that we begin to get them to think about that. So rather than just saying this and this, giving an example, maybe actually saying to them, okay, what do you think about this? And getting building on their thinking as opposed to just telling them how to do one of them. Um, but that's a fine balance, I think. And it's, it's something that is an eternal struggle, I'll be honest. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I couldn't agree more um, with you there, Chris. This this looks like, you know, I, I don't know how I've not seen this activity before. You know, this is an absolutely lovely one. And as you're talking, obviously, 95% of me is fully concentrating on the words you're saying. But 5% of me, I, I can't wait to get oh, yeah. stuck into this task myself. It's absolutely <laughs> ideal. And, but yeah, you're right. It's um, I think this is certainly the kind of task you could just bang up on the board and, and see what happens for the first few minutes. But then be prepared for the kid who says, I don't have a clue what's going on going on here um how to kind of get them started but also the yeah. kid who gets this done pretty quickly like have, mm-hmm. have you got anything have, any experience with that like wh- wh- where do you go next with this if you've got a child who's finished after five five ten minutes or something oh yeah it's dead easy okay can you extend this to give me all the numbers up to 20 can you create the multiplications to oh, give me the numbers nice. up to 20 so then obviously when it comes to what is 17 we need a new symbol in there mm. um and you can you can do that <coughs> You can then say, okay, can you can you, can you create me the powers of two? What would the powers of two all look like? So you then get this pattern of that times that, then that times that times that, then that times that times that mm. times that, building up, and you get this this sense of and and it's just but have it as I say as I say what Tom Carson said to me, it's about having these actions available, and it's about building that kind of thinking into your pedagogy. So. Um, I used to spend a lot, it's been able to tweak and adapt a task on the spot and it's looking at it and there's a, there's a really nice um, book called The Art of Problem Posing um, by Brown and Walter and in that they talk about um, the strategy of what if not and what that means is basically look at your task you've got and think about what are all the key attributes in this and then think about well what if that was not the case and as soon as you do that, you've got a whole different mishmash of stuff. So what if not? Well, this is 11 of the numbers from 0 to 12. Well, you saw what I did. I said, well, 0 to 20. Um, and I'm looking in there. Well, we talked about square numbers. We talked about the, the, that cube number. Well, we could extend it. And it's just looking at it there and making these tweaks as you go. Um, and, <coughs> and having that kind of flexibility, looking at the problem and thinking, what are all the features of this that I can identify? What would be different? But I'm noticing here, just as we sit and do this, um, that all multiplications, what if I changed up the divisions? Mm. What if I changed them to additions and so on? And just, it's there's more mathematics coming out of that. I'm not saying all of it, not all of the tweaks that you think of are going to be 
uh, necessarily harder or better than what you've got. But what um, Anne Watson said to me, uh, I'm sure I've read us uh, writing this as well, is um, the first and second thing you come up with probably won't be that good. It's um, by the third attempt, though, you'll thought of something pretty cool because you'll have to think hard about it. That the first two things you think about when you're tweaking, well, you'll, you'll come up with them relatively easily. But by the third one, you'll actually maybe have come up with a good tweak, which is going to challenge. Um, it you know, so says, she said, like, getting a couple down. It's fascinating Sorry. when you say that. This, this this is something I've been I've been playing around with um, recently with with, um, with regard to again whether it's the variations. Well, yeah, let's talk specifically about this. Um, but with with my kind of series of um, very varied sequences of questions or intelligent practice or minimally different or whatever we want to call them. Um, what I used to do is I would I would say to students something along the lines of how would you explain the connection between um, question six and question seven to somebody who didn't understand it yet? And that was fine. Mm. But everybody, everybody can explain. Well, most people can explain it one way, but it's the way they thought of, thought about themselves. Um, and it doesn't prompt that much deep thought. But as soon as you tweak that to say, how would you explain the connection between question six and seven in two different ways? Then the kind of extra thought comes through because your first way gets you, you sort that out. That's just the way you did it. But then what happens if that way doesn't work? What, what's your second way? What's what's the way that you're going to then come at it if the first way doesn't hit home with the person that you're trying to explain it to? And I think. I think it's, it's similar to what you're saying there in the sense that as soon as we challenge ourselves, whether we're teachers or we challenge the kids, not just to think of, of one additional thing or, or, or two additional things. It's the more additional things we think of, the more, the deeper we have to think about them. If Does that make sense at all? Oh, yeah, that, that's very, very powerful. And I think um, that's quite a common feature in Japanese teaching is this idea that um whereby they'll maybe be presented with a problem. It's building on your theme here. Uh, I'm not tr- deliberately trying to go off on a tangent again. <laughs> um, and what happens is um, <clears throat> there's maybe a problem and there's different student solutions and these are all shared. But then the teacher will ask the, pu- the pupils to do it again or do a related problem, but doing it somebody else's way. Do it, mm. do it using someone else's method. And by doing that, you're then getting fresh insight into it. Um, this like what you had is this absolute kind of method it's now this kind of sense of relativity it's like oh coming at it from here gives me new insight it gives me new ideas um, and that that kind of like so what you're saying there about the pupil explaining it one way and then explaining it another it, it's I, I'm quite a fan of that it's like um, you know not doing the problem once but maybe I'm not saying it's always suitable but doing the same problem but doing it in three or four different ways can be yes. can be quite a quite an interesting thing. Uh, a little anecdote on that. I was teaching a straight line to class just before Christmas and I taught them tons of stuff about it. But what I hadn't done was taught them how do you find, um, I, hadn't, I hadn't formally told them how can you identify if a point lies on the line. So obviously you'd be doing like, well, many different methods for that. And what I was startled by, by because they had they had had a lot of teaching. They'd been told a lot of stuff uh, by this stage. But what what they did was they came up with such a vast range of different strategies. Some of the kids created a table of values and saw if the point was in the table of values. Other pupils made an accurate coordinate diagram and plotted the point and drew the line accurately. Um, other pupils used a kind of rudimentary algebraic approach. Another pupil 
um, plotted the point and then said, okay, I'm going to step backwards using the gradient in reverse. So the gradient here was five. I'm going to go down five and backwards one. And if I keep doing this, what's going to happen is I'm going to land at this y-intercept of this equation. If that happens, this original point lies in the line. And there was a whole host of other stuff like this. So there's amazing insights because they've been taught so much. And then this, towards the end of the learning episode, I thought, I'm not going to tell them this, but they know enough to do it. And then what the follow-up to that then is, okay, can you now go and do this related problem using somebody else's way or maybe two or three other people's ways? And there was about seven of them. I'm sure I put this on Twitter at the time. It blew, it blew me away how, how amazing um, the thinking was uh, behind it. But um, the... They, they struggled to to use each other's methods. That was that was the thing that came out of it. Uh, and what he found was, I think, using all those different methods that existed, most of them could maybe get their head around about two or three of the others. And I thought that's quite an interesting observation. And, I, and well, I didn't pursue that any further. But it's something which is a line of inquiry I'd like to go down. Why was it that they could only see it maybe two, three, or four ways instead of maybe all seven ways? Um, yes. Or is it adequate that they can see it more than one way? I don't know. Fascinating. Just before we move on from from these tasks, Chris, one one thing that that I often struggle with is um, kids getting the most out of them in terms of the the kind of discussions that they have between them and the discussions that they have with me as as their teacher. Because there's a danger, isn't there, that if we just project one of these tasks up or hand one of these tasks out. Um, the the kids don't get as much out of it as they could do if they just sit there kind of silently cracking on with it on their own. So I wonder, how do we get the kids better at discussing things between them? And how do we as teachers get better at eliciting these discussions either between the students or between the kids and, and us as teachers, if, if any of that makes sense at all? Yeah, sure. Um, probably one of the most important books, and I'm going to mention this as one of my big three um, that I've read is Mike Askew, Transforming Primary Mathematics. Um, I'd urge any secondary teacher to read this, um, as well as primary colleagues, because it's one of the nicest put-together books I've ever read on, on maths teaching. And he's got a lovely section in there on, uh, on talk. And one of the things he talks about is, well, the distinction between discussion and dialogue, mm. right? Um so I'll come up to that in a moment. So what I was saying is that too often pupils, what, what, what we do as teachers quite often is we get them to share the finished methods or answers, and then when that's happening, the others are just passively listening. Yes. Right. If they're listening, they're actually just like they're they're just not causing a riot. They might not even <laughs> be listening. Uh, so it's maybe even though it's a whole class discussion, sometimes that's just uh, a wee back and forth. Yes. So what we kind of want, what he said was, we want pupils to be able to react and to think to each other's methods and their thinking. So what, <coughs> what we need to do, first of all, is teach them how to listen attentively. Not that idea of not interrupting and being silent. Um, but that, that alone isn't listening. Mm. So we'll come to that in a moment, a few techniques. But an important distinction he made was this one between dialogue mm. and discussion. Right? Um, dialogue basically means coming to that coming to knowledge and it literally means through the word dialogue so coming knows about uh, uh, knowing comes about basically through the back and forth exchange of ideas it's not saying i know and i'm trying to get you to think this it's 
it's actually together by discussing together you're building an understanding right which is different from discussion because discussion is about asserting this position as the one to hold it's about trying to win it's about trying to impose one's view if, if we get that distinction there now sometimes when we have discussion as a teacher it might be discussion we might be saying this is but dialogue on the other hand well as teachers, you and I are having a dialogue. I'm learning tons talking to you just now. Um, and I'm thinking about the questions you're giving me, not just so I can answer them, but also as points for reflection. Mm. And teachers, we do that. We dialogue with each other. Some people discuss stuff, but other people dialogue. Um, <coughs> but dialogue depends upon good questions um, as well. So the question, that side of it, I've already talked about how we... Teachers need to train themselves to, to be better at questioning. We can't just expect it to happen. And that's why I'm a big fan of books like Thinkers and Questions and Prompts. And well, there's so much in there. So it's just about taking perhaps taking one bit of it and either practicing that type of question, just building this in as part of your practice, or sitting down for this topic and using the Questions and Prompts book to generate a series of questions. For instance, for Straight Line, using Question and Prompts book I generated about 40 different questions that I could ask at some point. I think I maybe used five of them in the end, but they were there and I had them ready, if that makes sense. Um, And those were going to become a basis. So sitting down preparing the the questions is important. Anyway, very quickly, a couple of strategies that Mike Askew suggested to help pupils talk to each other in pairs or small groups. Like, a very simple one. Let's see... Lay out your board as if it's example problem pairs, but it isn't. So you've already done all that. And you give each kid, so you've maybe, you, if they're in pairs, for instance, uh, pupil A does this question and pupil B does this question. They're two similar questions, but each pupil does a different one. And then they have to share their method and their answer with their partner. Now, the idea here is, well, automatically, if they have the same answer, what's going to happen? If they've both done the same question, automatically, they just look at the answers and tick. Yes. But here, because they've done different questions, but they are related, A, they'll be able to help each other, but also they have to pay attention to what the other person's done and listen mm. to them. So I thought that was quite nice. That's nice. That's nice. Another one, another, another one he talked about was um, basically solve a recorder is a strategy he talked about. And that's where one pupil uh, does all the writing. So you get a question, this one pupil does all the writing for it but they're not allowed to think for themselves. The other pupil who isn't doing the writing has to dictate exactly. This <laughs> other pupil has to do the solving. Right? So the writer writes down exact, only exactly what the solver tells him or her to do. Right? Now, this is important because, obviously, after this, the person who's doing the writing, they, they will have been thinking about it as they're writing it. Yes. They'll listen to the other person, and they might agree, and then nothing else happens. Or they might disagree. And once you say, okay, now the writers can go and fix it or can make their own attempt, what's going to happen to the person who's who done all the thinking to begin mm. with? They're going to be thinking, hold on a minute, I was right, what were you saying? <laughs> and, they, and then they actually listen to each other and you spark the conversation that way. Uh, uh, and the final one, another strategy that Mike asked you suggested was a clue problem, a clue problem, sorry. And that is most questions come with the question and then perhaps two parts of information. He said, what you do is you give them both the, qu- the question. They sat on the desk. They both have the question. But see those bits of information? One pupil gets one bit. The other pupil gets the other bit. And they can both see the question, but they can't see the other bit of information. 
they can only ask the other people to tell them it. So then again, what you're doing is you're training them to listen to each other for the information. And also that that idea of interpreting word problems as well and what have you. They're really, oh, hold on, there's something missing here I need to get. So those are some nice things that, that, that he talked about there. And I think the final thing I'd say upon, upon talk would be, um, somebody said to me the other day that who is it that asks the questions in the classroom? Is it the teacher or is it the pupils? And an interesting activity to do is to get a couple of clickers, one in each pocket, and click every time you ask a question and click the other one every time a pupil asks a question and just see what comes of that. Um, because if you're developing a real mathematical uh, classroom community with conjecturing, observations, inquiry, um, what if, those sorts of questions are, are the norm, the dispositions of a mathematician, then you should have at least the same amount of questions from pupils, if not more, mm-hmm. than what the number of questions you're asking. That's um, fascinating. And then, it's fascinating, that, Chris. Yeah. yeah geez, I, 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 I'd be scared to do it. Now I'm thinking I'd be scared to do that activity because I, I, I think I'm asking more questions. And I think, um, again, just to go back to some of the kind of prompts I've been thinking of my, myself to try and get more questions and more deeper thought from the kids um I, 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 again I, I can't remember exactly where i saw this it was on twitter somewhere and um, but somebody said um a, a really good kind of prompt to say to, to say to kids if you say something like um, does anybody have any questions then it's that, that that's that's kind of you know you may get somebody asking a question but you may not but if you just change it around to say something like ask me a question about this exercise or ask me a question about this 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 sequence that the kind of change of does anybody have to to ask me the change of a question to almost a command tends to elicit more i've found anyway in just the, the limited experience i've had with this tends to tends to elicit more responses from kids they tend to ask more questions and, and my final tweet to that is ask me two questions about this sequence of questions or ask me two questions about this activity and that goes to back back to what i was saying before people can tend to not have to think too hard to come up with one thing they'd ask but what's that second thing so yeah yeah I, this is something mm-hmm. i definitely ponder at the moment and it, and i'm really pleased well i'm pleased for, for, two, for two reasons about the things you've said there the first is that it really hammers home that we can't just take for granted that kids are going to have these interesting conversations with each other we we can produce the most interesting activities in the world but unless kids are thinking hard and unless kids are talking to each other and learning from each other, then we're never going to get, they're never going to get as much value from these tasks and activities as they could do. And this is just like we'd explicitly teach kids to, to kind of add fractions together or solve equations. We, we need to essentially explicitly provide opportunities for kids to get good at this kind of dialogue and, and, and talking to each other. So that's fascinating. And the, the second thing is I, I, I was lucky enough to see Mike Askew speak um, two days ago. And I went up to him afterwards, thanks to thanks to Joe Morgan. I was a bit nervous, but he knows Joe through through the MA. And I said to Mike, "Well, would you would you consider being on the podcast?" And a big smile lit across his face, and he says he's a big fan of the show and he can't wait to come on. So that's put me in a bit of a quandary. Oh, I'm going to need to do some serious research because he's super smart. So <laughs> I'm going to have to be I'm going to have to be clued up on clued up on that. But that's fantastic stuff, that Chris. Right, um, 
just before we move to kind of reflections, um, a little section I've come up with just for this interview, and I'm calling it things we may disagree on, because I think that <laughs> I think we 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 would we would tend to agree on most things. And I think it's interesting, Chris, we've been through a similar journey, haven't we, in terms of, as, as I mentioned before, the yeah. research and swinging, you know, back where, backwards and forwards and so on and so forth. But I think there's there's kind of a couple of things that, that we may disagree on, but I may be surprised. Who knows? So the first is this concept of atomization. Um, what, what, what do you think it means and what, what are your current views on it? Um, well, I've been following it on Twitter uh, and seeing people people write about it and planning sequences of lessons, uh, resources and what have you, uh, using this atomization, which is breaking down like, every single possible variation, every single case. Uh, one I saw today was somebody was doing the distributive law for uh, one term over two term, one term over three term, but it was every different type of term, every, type, every permutation. And all of this, and that that was kind of how I was seeing this idea of atomization. And I, I've, I've read, uh, like, for instance, some of Naveen Rizvi stuff on it, um, and the idea of connected mass concepts and uh, Engelman and all this. However, um, for me, it, it it doesn't sit well. I'll be honest. <laughs> um, it 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 kind of. It's an intervention. It, that's that's what this was all designed as is to begin with, for for lowest detainers, pupils who were really really struggling, and for those guys, it will work and it will help. Um, I have no doubt about that. Um, and I know, like with my weakest pupils, the amount of direct teaching probably increases. Um, however, I think. It's quite inefficient, and I'm going to even say maybe even a waste of time for most oh, kids. Now we're talking. Right? <laughs> That's controversial, okay? Now, the reason for this is pupils bring knowledge with them. So whatever you're teaching on any given day, they already know stuff from before. And the other thing they have is they have this ability to make these small jumps in reasoning themselves. I'm not advocating that they go and discover new facts and maths for themselves, but they have the ability to reason. That, that's, that's, that's a human characteristic. We all have that. So to plan out every single permutation, of whether it's angle question or every single type of uh, multiplying out bracket, denies A, the, the knowledge they bring with them, and B, this ability that they have. So yet yeah, we do have to directly teach sometimes we do have to give well broken down examples but for the majority of pupils we don't need to go as deep and broken down as um, the atomization kind of some of the tasks I've seen go um, I think in there it's because the other thing I've said at the beginning is if we view maths as just being procedures and then maybe some conceptual stuff on top of it then well you know what atomizations may be fine but if we're talking about procedures, concepts, and being mathematical, acting as a mathematician, I, I, I struggle to see how that fits in there. Um, like I, I saw, um, the, it was Andrew Blair's uh, prompt inquiry prompt about percentages, 
And then Naveen had done a thing with that, uh, explaining how she would teach it. And, and to be honest with you, for, and, for, sorry, for the benefit of listeners, this is the one where yes. it's where it's like a percent of B is the same as B percent of A. But Andrew uses a, a numerical example, doesn't he? I think it's maybe thirty percent of yeah, seventy, seventy right. percent of thirty, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now Naveen then used that as a template for a lesson. Mm. For me personally, um, I I don't think I'd be using it in the same way as Andrew or Naveen. I, I would be I'd be somewhere in the middle. I would have taught them some percentage stuff. They would know some stuff, and then I'd put the prompt up and I'd let them try it. Um, and a lot of them would succeed, and some of them wouldn't. And they would dig into that. But I would want them to have that opportunity to to be mathematical. I think it's so important. That they get those opportunities, they get that, get that, get that, that chance. Now, I, I'm not going to, um, <clears throat> I'm not trying to speak for anyone else because I don't know what goes on in anyone else's classroom. But I, I, I'd be saying j- just simply that if those were the only tasks we were doing, um, even if um, it wouldn't be enough for me um, to give pupils a kind of mathematical experience I would want them to have. And an important point I want to make on this is. There's been a whole, in my task design research, there's been a whole host of papers talking about the importance of tasks and how they shape pupils' perceptions of what mathematics is. Um, Hemmingson and Steen, 1997, they had a paper, and it says, pupils develop their sense of what it means to do mathematics from the classroom activities in which they engage. So if it, all it is is example problem pairs and lots of doing and lots of sequential stuff, if that's if that dominates too much, then that's not mathematics because the real mathematics is <coughs> when we've learned the stuff and now we're using it, or when we're thinking deeply. And I'm not saying you're not thinking when you're doing these atomization type tasks. You are thinking. I'm not saying there's nothing going on, and there's going to be positive outputs. So it's not even about the outcome per se, but we you'll get the procedures there and I dare say some of the concepts, but do we need to invest all that time in that stuff? And what's going to have to give? Well, if you're going to spend get that level of depth, then what might have to give is the behaving mathematically aspect of it. And it kind of depends upon if you value that or not. And for me, I, I, that's the ultimate kind of the aim of what we do. Yeah, we've got this. We've got these um, the currency of exam passes and what have you. But actually, I want to build mathematicians at whatever level they are. Um, so that would be my kind of, my kind of take on that and it, I, can't, I think it, it ties in with a lot of the stuff about cognitive load theory as well whereas um, Anne Watson's recent paper which um, took it apart a little bit mm. well, not not entirely but like, she was critical of it now, I'm a massive fan of Anne she's one of my, my big big hero of mine and like, she said something so simple a lot of, a lot of cognitive, cognitive load theory ignores the fact that like um, in maths, what we have, we have a device for long-term memory built into us called our hand, and we hold a pencil and we can write stuff down. We don't need to hold all this stuff in our head. Like that, we don't work by doing it all mentally. We actually get to write stuff down sometimes. Um, something she said to me a couple of weeks ago as well at an ATM meeting was dual coding. Right, is a big push on this just mm. now. Well, that, that's multiple representations. We have that in maths already. So there's sometimes I think as these theories come out and people discover research and it's good stuff. I'm not arguing with it, 
But it's then, well, hold on, just let's go back and look at it in the context of pupils in classrooms and look at it in terms of mathematics. And because a lot of these studies don't take into account that pupils are not completely novice. They, they are part of a progression in their learning. They are partway through a journey. Um, they are not starting from zero. They have stuff they know. It's about building on what they have and using the powers they have. They do. They they have developed mathematical capacities, so they are not completely novice. If it's a new field, they may be, but at different points in the learning episode over the sequence of seven or eight lessons for whatever it is we're teaching, I think you've got to um, you've got to give space for <coughs> easing off. And the other thing I'd say as well is that even using cognitive load theory, you can talk about the expertise reversal effect. Like if all we're doing is DI, lots of, lots of direct teaching and lots of drill, then what the evidence says that that at some point becomes inefficient mm. and actually people do better with less uh, guided instruction. And then there's another one like the McKinsey report. Uh, and uh, at LaSalle, we show this at a lot of our talks. And it's where... Uh, it's a sweet spot, roughly 80% direct kind of teaching, and then it's 20%, 20% inquiry teaching. And there's a nice there's a nice graph that where if you increase the amount of direct instruction, attainment does go up to a point. If it goes past about 80% of the teaching, then what happens is the, the attainment actually isn't as good. Um, and I think I think this was maybe based on science, but it's still even with that. Um, I'd, I'd be wanting to draw some kind of evidence into that in mathematics so that's my perspective on it but um i'd be interested to hear your thoughts craig yeah it's, it's fascinating this so uh, there's two things that spring to mind the, the first is um that i would argue atomization or my take on it and i'll get to my specific take on it in a second but i would argue that atomization can in the long run save us time and that time can then be used to allow learners to get the most out of these activities that will enable them to behave mathematically and i think that a big mistake i've made in the past is rushing learners onto these kind of tasks and then ultimately not being able to get out of it what i hope they would be get, able to get out of it and it ended up being quite a frustrating yeah. experience so that that'd be the first thing i'd say that i i, I would argue that atomization perhaps done the way that i'm going to art- try to articulate it now saves time in the long run and that time can then be used um, to to get learners to behave mathematically and as you say that fits in perfectly with cognitive load theory with the expertise reversal effect that it reaches a point where learners don't benefit from doing examples from doing these kind of routine exercises because they're ready for more they've reached that level of expertise where they they need more challenge they they need to be be stimulated further and so on but just to go back to um to atomization um, I think I think I have a different slightly different take on it than um than than Naveen does um so let, let's take a practical example here. So let's take something like um, calculating an estimate for the mean of group data, something like that. So a, a, a mistake, well, I, I'm pretty sure it is a mistake, but what I would have done in the past is I would have taken kids through a worked example of how to calculate the mean from a, a, from a set of group data and calculate an estimate for the mean from, from group data. 
without first breaking that down into the prerequisite knowledge that kids will need to be able to do that. So, for example, um, I wouldn't have done any kind of assessment or any kind of check that they understood the inequality notations within the group. Um, I wouldn't have checked whether they understood what the word frequency meant um, in, the, in the group table. Crucially, there would have been no check that they were good at being able to calculate midpoints, and which is obviously a fundamental skill for being able, that they need to be able to calculate an estimate of the mean. There'd have been no check that they could use their calculator efficiently to add a load of numbers and divide it. And if the questions, which they often do require kids to round to one decimal place or two decimal places, there would have been no check of that. What I would have done instead was in my head think, well, I can bring all those skills together in the example. So I can essentially teach or remind kids how to calculate midpoint, how to use their calculator, how to round and so on and so forth. Now, the problem, of course, with that is that if any of those skills are deficient, if any of that knowledge is lacking, then kids are trying to figure out how to do that whilst also trying to figure out how all this stuff fits together in this 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 multi-step procedure which is calculating an estimate of the mean from from group data and that's problematic that that's too much for kids to think about um, and to use the language of cognitive load theory that's where we start to get cognitive overload but worse than that chris and i think this is this is a problem when we don't do what i'm going to describe in a second when we don't atomize is that if a child at the end of that that process says to me, I can't calculate an estimate of the mean from list of the, from group data, or sir, I'm stuck, or sir, I've got it wrong, I then have to start playing detective to try and figure out where in this process they've gone wrong, because it could be anywhere, because there's so much stuff going on. Whereas if I atomize first, and I discover a problem with one of those atoms, I know exactly where the problem is. So I can, I can go straight in on it, and I can intervene more effectively and, and more efficiently. But but I don't break it down as, as much as Naveen. For me, my take of atomization is it's a process where before I teach a new procedure or method or concept, I make a list of all the prerequisite knowledge that, that students need. And I make sure I either assess or develop that knowledge before then I show kids how it all fits together in this new order, which is the procedure that I'm going to be teaching them. So I would do a sequence of questions on midpoint. I would do a sequence of questions on rounding to one decimal place. I would do a quick knowledge check that they understood inequality notation, probably through a diagnostic question and so on and so forth. And for me, this process of what I think of atomization then enables students to better understand how some, how these, these, these items of knowledge fit together whenever I teach them the, 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 the procedure and mean that there's less, that they're more likely to be successful and it's a more efficient process so that therefore we can get to the, the more creative, mathematically behavior inducing tasks further on into the learning episode. Now, do, do, does any of that make sense? And have you any anything to kind of have, have I missed anything from that? If that makes sense. Yeah, I think it comes back to our chart informative assessment earlier on, to be honest. Um, and I'm kind of drawing to my own thinking about the mastery cycle. Mm. But what you're saying makes perfect sense. And I, I, I'd be doing the same before I was teaching something like we said earlier. I'd be using a prerequisite kind of check mm. on that um, of some variety. Because like, unless they can do the stuff they need to be able to do, I wouldn't be um, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be teaching something new if they yes, didn't have the yes. prerequisite knowledge and skills there. I would hope though, um, in this particular example, if we if we got to that point, um, 
that there wouldn't be all of these gaping holes there. Um, and you you would have been building that up over time and uh, you'd, you'd have a sense of confidence about it, but not false confidence. You'd have hopefully elicited some evidence of understanding of these things as you went along through your ongoing formative assessment, through homework, through your, your interleaved tasks and what have you using. Um, I, I get exactly what you say about breaking them down. I would... I'd be reluctant to kind of spend a lot of time in all of that unless there was one where a lot of the class were stuck, where I was getting a sense that a lot of them got that wrong. Right, we need an exercise on this. I'll now do I'll do a bit. But generally speaking, I tend to find that in this example, it would be maybe individuals. Um, <clears throat> and again, this comes back to that whole grouping versus mixed ability. In a mixed ability setting, that's much harder. And I get if it was mixed ability, why this... Um, might be like the way I would go to, I'd maybe have to go down that way um, just to ensure that everyone's getting the best deal. But I think you've kind of got homogenous groupings and you narrow that gap a bit between uh, what they, uh, between each of the people in terms of what they know and don't know. Then maybe um, from there, it would be a kind of reactive, okay, I'm going to need to uh, do a half lesson going over this stuff. Um, I, I think you're right there about breaking down the subscales, like, a colleague recently was talking about um, I'm going back to calculus it was the curve sketching questions mm. actually no it wasn't even that it was just it was given a function let's say it was a function like uh, f of x equals x minus 1 over root x and you to differentiate this well there's a lot of stuff there You've first of all you've got to prepare that for differentiation because uh, at this point um, we're going to assume they don't know the quotient rule so you've got mm. to learn how to prepare that minute You've then got to learn how to differentiate it, and then you've got to learn how to like, tidy it back up and write it with positive powers and all this. So because that's quite a convoluted, quite a difficult thing from my own experience for pupils to get their hair drowned, then doing uh, some work on preparing, some work on the differentiation, and then some work on the tidying up separately and pulling them together makes perfect sense to me because it's something which historically they've found hard. So atomising in that sense is fine. And I'm not, like when I say atomisation, I'm not against... Uh, breaking things up because part of what mass theory is looking at the learning objectives and breaking them down and make sure you're, you're these things that sometimes we assume the pupils would pick up we actually explicitly teach them or we make sure there's experiences planned there mm. so so I'm all for that in a sense however I wouldn't be looking at it all the time as being a way to teach some stuff I just think there's enough they know this they know the prerequisites well enough that I can go and I can just teach this um, and I don't need to scaffold this new thing over three different sheets to build it up. I, I, they'll be able to deal with it, and I go. And I think that you're coming at it from two perspectives. You're coming at you're coming at it from like your knowledge of reading and research, but you're also coming at it from your lived experience, don't you? Mm. Like because no matter your truth is only relative to what what you've lived and what you've experienced and what you've seen work. So you can read anything in a book or in a blog online, but until you see it work then it doesn't become part of what you think. Um, <clears throat> that's what I've kind of found anyway. But you go read something, you try it, and it doesn't quite work. And then you begin to have to question, am I doing it wrong, am I whatever. So in the case of this, um, I think it's about taking the idea that do we chunk stuff up? Uh, do, we, do, we, do we break stuff up into smaller chunks? Yeah, at times. But would I want that as my, like, um, my, my dominant kind of pedagogy? No. What you're talking about, I'd agree with in certain circumstances of certain classes. I think that would be quite useful. 
And I definitely agree with you when you're saying here the prerequisite kind of uh, checking before going out to do stuff, and then that enables them to have success on what you're going to do, um, which would be kind of fundamental to the mastery cycle. You shouldn't be doing something with them unless they're ready to do it. And if they are ready to do it, then they'll, you can focus on the deeper stuff and um, the deep ideas in there, as well as practicing the procedure and what have you. Yeah, and, and I think it's for me it's it's a relatively speedy process. It's it's this this yeah. check. Like if I've if I know for example I've I've taught something relatively recently, it'll be a check. And as long as the question and I, I tend to use diagnostic yeah. questions, as long as it's a good question, um and from the kids responses and perhaps i'll dive into their thinking a bit more by asking them questions about some of the wrong answers and why they're wrong and so on that can be done in two two three minutes and i'll have enough evidence there in the moment to think okay yeah the, the understanding is probably there i'm not i won't put any big money on it that it's there because again i'm possibly just observing performance but i'm i'm, I'm happy to, to 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 make the call that that knowledge is secure enough for me to me to crack on with with teaching the, the kind of new procedure that's based on this knowledge but for some Something um, as fundamental as, say, for example, calculating the midpoint is to success in being able to calculate an estimate for the mean. Um, I'm probably going to justify spend. I think I can justify spending 10, 15 minutes doing a sequence of questions that that really gets to the heart of that. That um, and this will be from my kind of variation theory website where I'm. It's not just kids mindlessly working through kind of the procedures. I'll get to ask interesting questions about why why the, those three questions have the same midpoint. I can I can interleave in negatives, decimals, fractions, and so on. But I want kids to whenever they see the calculation of the midpoint in this new procedure that I'm about to teach them I want them thinking oh there's that thing I'm really good at so I can just focus all my attention on where does this fit into this new process as opposed to trying to think how the hell do I do that and how does it fit into this new thing I'm trying to do so for me atomization is a relatively efficient process it's I'm not dragging it out and um, but for me it's fundamental to the to, to the success that my kids are hopefully going to have when it comes to the new to the new thing I'm teaching them if if that makes sense but I think again I don't think we massively disagree on this um I, th- I think we've there's, there's some kind of common ground is, is that your take yeah yeah, I, I think so too. Like what you're saying there, like the, the timing of it, what have you, what you're saying, it makes a lot of sense to me, and um, I, I can't object to that. I think sometimes it's, it's the language we use because mm. I think your atomization is different to somebody else's, which yes. is different to mine. Yes. And sometimes we don't even know what we mean by atomization, <laughs> yeah. so you end That's up fair. in these. And I, I had another a conversation the other day, and I used the word constructivist. Now, I knew what I meant constructivist mm. to mean. I was using it as a catch-all for a certain type of teaching. And then I got this chat about how it's a learning theory versus not a way of teaching, blah, blah, blah. I, I know that. But in the moment, it was easy just to use that word. Yes. And sometimes we don't have the language to describe exactly what we're talking about. Um, which I think has been one of the nice things about some of the stuff you've done, where you've captured these these ideas, these ways of working. This is SSDD. This is example uh, example problem pairs. If you get what I'm saying, you've you've mm. got it in a a way which people have got a commonality, so we can discuss yes. it and then understand it more. It's a really um, important speaking, point. Yeah, sorry, go go, Chris. Yeah, it's funny. Funny you mentioned your, your variation theory website actually, because the that again that's something which I, I've used uh, many times stuff from it and. Again, it's like, um, I know there's been some kind of debate on Twitter with, with that one. 
uh, uh, mildly putting it, and people <laughs> go on about how this isn't variation or this is and whatever. It, it's I'm not really caring too much about the semantics here. Are these tasks which are going to promote mathematical thinking of pupils, which are going to help move them forward? Yes. Some of them on there. Um, I often find myself, see if I've got a pupil who's struggling on these intervention, then I know there'll be a sequence on there which will help take them forward. I, I, I working with a pupil yesterday and it was change the subject. And somebody who uploaded a series of six change the subject tasks mm. or formula. And I, we went through these and it really helped to move them forward. And there was a big step in the thinking. So that breakdown there was good. But it wasn't what I would call atomized in the sense that it was yes. micro micro broken down but yes. they still had to do a bit of thinking the example problem pairs weren't like identical like they, they weren't treating the child as if they didn't have any clue or couldn't make any inferences or make any jumps themselves so it's that fine line i think is what we're kind of we're getting at here um when when i think about like big atomization rather than your type um that, that subtle distinction I think you're absolutely right, Chris. Yeah. And again, Doug Lamov talks about this as well, about the importance of a shared vocabulary, the importance of, of knowing what each other's talking about, whether it's students or, and the t understanding what the teacher means or, or whether, as you've pointed out, whether it's, it's teachers understanding what the hell we're, we're speaking about. And that's why whenever I'm lucky enough to speak to teachers, um, I know when I start talking about variation, there'll be people in the audience who think I'm talking absolute crap for, from the outset. So I make it very clear that my aim of the, of the talk or the workshop is not to convince people I'm right but to try and articulate exactly what i am saying so that at least if you yes. disagree you know what you're disagreeing with if if that makes sense um yeah anyway what um we've we've kind of touched upon it there then let, let, let's talk a little bit about minimally different problems because um this is another kind of thing on twitter that there will be people who just think this is the worst thing they've ever seen and there will be other people there'll be people at the other side who think this is possibly think this is the kind of key to mathematics and this is the key to developing understanding and so on and so forth so i wonder where, where do you sit with this where do you sit with kind of sequences of minimally different problems or a variation or whatever we want to kind of label this out well, what's your viewpoint chris variation for me is about the relationships if i change this what happens to this mm. um and variance and invariance in terms of the, the perceptual how does it appear so looking at looking at that <coughs> Um, I, I think I think there's a there's a lot of power in it. Um, there's a lot, a lot of use for it. Uh, I in terms of in terms of the, the the question sequences, again, I've sat on the fence a lot today, except when we talked about atomization, and I'm probably going to do it again here and say it just depends. There are some times where um, carefully varied examples are very eliminating. Uh, other times. You get minimally different questions, which actually, they're minimally different in that they are getting gradually harder as they go on. But in terms of underlying thinking, there's maybe not that much going on in there. I know I know on your site you classify the four different types, which I think is sensible because there are different tasks there. Mm. You have the kind of pattern spot and variation, which look if we're talking about introducing the addition of negative numbers, for instance, <coughs> then... 1 plus 4, 1 plus 3, 1 plus 2, 1 plus 1, 1 plus 0, 1 plus negative 1. You can pull out patterns and that. I like that kind of thing. So in terms of all of this, I think it, I think having a, having an understanding of variance and invariance is very useful. 
you can use it in terms of exemplification. You can use it in terms of question sequences. Uh, some of the work we've been doing at LaSalle has been on uh, dynamic question generation. And I've been working with the guys in the office and what, what, what I've recently published is a, a software which will generate intelligently varied factorization questions. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of logic behind it. So the, rather than being uh, random, there's a careful variation in the constants A, B, and C of the quadratic in such a way to help uh, reveal the underlying structure. Then there are other ones which appear to be completely different, but in the underlying answers, there's invariance in there. So there's that, that flip side of it. Um, <clears throat> so pulling the, pulling the whole thing together, I, th- I think there's, there's, there's that side of it, and then there's the other side of it, which is it might not be a sequence of questions, it might be some demonstration it, in terms of what I think you talk about in your book, like the straight line has been a classic one. Well, this is y mm. equals 2x plus 1. Here's y equals 3x plus 1. Here's y equals 4x plus 1. What's happening? Mm. And so on. And I think that idea of one thing being constant so we can be aware of the other and the effect of it is obviously a very, very powerful pedagogical tool. Oh, like, oh, this again. I think we, we again, we, we found common ground there uh, again, Chris. This is this this is positive. Yeah. I, I like I like this. It may go all off the rails <laughs> when I chuck this final one, final one at you. Um, <laughs> this I, I always put this quote on the board when when I'm doing talks and I'm in a bit of a mischievous mood. Um, I always chuck this on the mix. So it's for, from um, from Sweller's 1982 paper where he says learners can engage in problem solving activities for extended periods and learn almost nothing. Um. When I remember when I first read that, and my initial reaction was, no, that's nonsense. Like, obviously, students are learning in these kind of tasks and so on and so forth. But I, I, th- I think I'm on board with this with this claim now. And I, I wonder, what what's your take on it, um, Chris? It's true. But it's also true that pupils can go through a full worksheet of procedural stuff and learn almost nothing as well. Mm. Um no, we might be talking on a probability scale here that the probabilities of learning nothing are greater on the problem solving task um, than they are on the, the, the procedural kind of drill sheet and it might depend on the, the people in question or what have you but the, the whole thing about problem solving is it really depends upon how it's executed and it's like how we set the problem solving up have, have we have, do a do they have the knowledge to do it because it, if it's a problem solving but they don't have the maths in which to access it it's no use <coughs> if the maths hasn't had that period of maturation like because um <coughs> i think like some malcolm swan and colin forster would say that it needs if they're going to problem solve on something they really need to have had um, a year or two of maturation mm. before they can really deeply go into it uh, so if we've not set the conditions for the problem solving up properly, then yeah, you're probably doomed to failure. But if you have, if they have the knowledge, if you've been developing mathematical thinking and the behaviours as you've been going along throughout the curriculum, and if there's been sufficient maturation for the ideas not to be completely novel, yes. then I think the chances of success are high. And it depends. What do we mean by learn something? Are we talking about have they learned a new procedure? Have they learned new concepts? Or have they have they practised conjecturing and arguing have they, have they practiced uh, visualizing from from words and creating diagrams uh, it's so difficult to capture that what are we seeing here exactly um, 
one thing we can be pretty sure of it's like you back and look at Swellers paper and it's that number game isn't it in the original paper yes um well, who the hell does that in the curriculum? Like that, that's my point there. It's, it's so it's so unrealistic because, yeah, everyone's coming into that with no prior knowledge and no idea how to tackle this class of problem. So if you set it up like that, of course they won't succeed, uh, most people. However, if they are coming with prior knowledge, which they all do, if you've built up this kind of uh, culture and then also if you allow that rich dialogue and then as a teacher, you pull it together and reflect upon it, and then you'll get there. Um, I think that's the thing about what what I, what is a task for, what is problem, uh, or whatever we're doing with the problem solving or not, it's about creating that common experience upon which we can all kind of reflect on and maybe learn something from. Um, because there's a really, I think it was Gatengo, but jo- John Mason talks about it a lot. It's like we can, we can, uh, we can we can teach awareness, right? It's educable, so we can we can we can raise awarenesses in pupils. We can harness their emotion and we can train their behaviour. But it, it, it's what we can't. That's all we're doing. And then from that, we hope some sort of learning will happen uh, off the back of it, looking at it through that framework. So um, yeah, so swellers there. It's a thing. Um, but it depends how you execute it and how you set it up would be my answer to that it's a, it's a very very smart answer Chris of which I have no comeback it's I think you're absolutely right I think I think there's a danger that we can we can overread into into Swallow's findings, and I, I love Dan Watson's paper. I thought it was an incredibly um, yeah an incredibly smart piece of writing, and no surprise there what whatsoever for for a man. Um, but I think that there is something at the heart of it that 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 as you as you've articulated far better than, than I would. It's it's about pitching these activities right. If we there's no such thing as I mean John Mason says there's no such thing as a rich task. I'd I'd, I'd say there's no such such thing as a, a good yeah. activity no such thing as a good activity i mean i'm, I'm looking at the three yeah. you you sent me there they are three amazing activities with the right students at the right times but we we can all think yes. of circumstances where we could use those and the kids would get absolutely zero from them so yeah it's just for me the smaller uh-huh. quote was it was just an alarm bell in my head that said just think this through. Just think that the best activity in the world used at the wrong time is 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 a waste of time. But yeah, I think I think we agree on that one. Well, fantastic. Well, yeah, I like I like that way you put that there. Yeah. Yes. Um. Right. Well. Um. To to bring this all together, Chris, just time for a few reflections, and I'm going to hand over to you for your big three. So I wonder. And again, this is probably going to be an impossible one for you to answer here because you, I know you've been reading so much of late. But is there any particular piece of research or book that that springs to mind that's significant? influenced your, your thinking or your teaching um, can I suggest a couple then go on then go on I've tried to really think hard here um, not to suggest stuff that everyone else might have said already on sure. the podcast so I'm going to say the Mike Askew book Transforming Primary Mathematics I, I really um, just such a nice uh, but from start to finish about tasks, about discussion, about the climate in the classroom, about representations. It's just one of the most uh, wonderful books I've read. So I'd recommend that to anyone. Um, another one uh, by John Mason and Watson is Mathematics as a Constructive Activity. Mm. Now that word constructive is in there, but what they're talking about here is learner-generated examples. 
<coughs> and you've got a book here over 200 pages about Lena-generated examples, but this is such an illuminating uh, book, and some of the stuff in it uh, generally blew my mind. But there's a quote in it, um, and like. You cannot learn that a particular fact holds for all numbers unless by having it shown that it holds good for some numbers. So, for instance, see if you're teaching Pythagoras, like here's a formula, then you start using it to work stuff out. Mm. What we should be doing is giving pupils sets of triples to actually verify that the left-hand side equals the right-hand side. There are some numbers which satisfy this relationship, and there are others which do not. And <clears throat> that was a random kind of thought that came out of that. Yes. It's full of like just little insights, um, and it's it's suitable sort of, sort of again for primary all the way up to secondary. Uh, the 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 amount of thinking in it is absolutely incredible. Only the insight of uh, John and Anne could have could have produced a book like this, and it's something that I've been through it, and now I'm going through it again. Um, and just rereading chapters and making notes because the way they write, the, the depth of the message in there is you read it the first time, you think you've understood it. <laughs> and like a good record, you go back and listen again and read again, but new stuff comes out of it and you and you get a you get a different sense from it. Um and my final one would be um I mentioned Danny Brown earlier. Mm. And Danny has an incredible blog. He's no longer on Twitter, but occasionally makes a comeback to argue with people then leaves again. <laughs> <laughs> and his blog is squeaktime.com. And you you have to go in there and um, <clears throat> sometimes his stuff is just hard to get your head around about what, where he's at and what he's going on about because he thinks it's such a deep level. Mm. Um but there was a post I shared on Twitter yesterday, and it was when he was teaching in Scotland. It was a higher maths lesson, and it was this is not my bread and butter. This is what I teach, and I had never seen anyone think about it or read it, write about it in that way before. And it was just like one of these uh, career-defining moments when I first read this about a year and a half ago. And um, so he's this blog is <laughs> absolutely phenomenal. Um, he hasn't been posting much recently, but he's got like five or six years worth of stuff on there. So I'd recommend go on it and just start reading some things from it. Particularly his work with younger children. Some of the mm. stuff he does with Crazy Near Rods. Um and the depth, like I couldn't believe what I was seeing, how what he had eight and eight and nine year olds doing with fractions, decimals and percentages. Uh, and in my country, when like I've got kids in front of me, three and four years older, who are nowhere near what he had these pupils able to do. Yes. Um an incredible educator and well I agree, and just on that, and so again, regular listeners will know myself and Danny have had a few run-ins on on Twitter over the years, and we we disagree on on a, on a fair number of things. But we had a very civil breakfast. There was no fights at the ATMMA conference. I was I was pleased to see. But one <laughs> one thing I love about Danny's Danny's blogs, and I don't think we get this enough in in kind of blogging these days, is it's it's about a teacher reflecting on what happened in a lesson, and that for me that's why. I love yeah. asking um, when I get maths teachers on how do you plan lessons um, because that's when we get a real insight and I think that's almost been lost a little bit in blogging recently there's not many people out there there's people sharing resources people sharing ideas yeah. but what about what did it look like when it was used in the lesson what went right what went wrong and what did you do about it and that yeah. for me is what I find the most interesting and as you say Danny's a, a great pioneer of, of that kind of uh, reflective blogging and um, what about what about um, next reflection Chris is there an example of something important you've changed your mind about? Um, 
yeah, I suppose I've hinted at it already. The <clears throat> the whole cognitive load theory direct instruction, because I found I found the teaching um, moving off in a direction which I felt was very reductionist, uh, overly simplified, and um quite a bit away from what I set out, what I thought teaching maths would be like. Um, and th- it's one of the reasons why I was so glad to encounter the ATM and Danny and John and Anne, because it gave me a language to describe what I'd always felt was a way I wanted to teach, but I didn't. Ha- there was no one out there that I could see had this evidence base behind it or had all these years of experience behind it. Uh, to support that kind of thinking, all it was was a cognitive load theory and direct instruction kind of side of things, which has all got a place. Um, but that's overwhelming voice on Twitter is that kind of side of it. So it, it's nice um, by engaging with the ADM, I got my confidence back to go back to teaching how I always wanted to teach, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, which is blending the best of both, hopefully, yes. is what you're trying to do. And I'm nowhere near that yet, but hopefully one day. Fantastic. And final reflection before I hand over to you, and this is this may be an impossible question. Is there anything you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now, Chris? Yeah. Um I'd, I'd say very simply, uh, the mastery cycle has been probably the most obvious and yet uh, most impactful thing. Like, I, I, why did I think I had to stick to a timeline? And why did I put pupils in for assessments that weren't ready to set assessments? Uh, why, why did I keep up with all the other classes when I had set six and everyone else had, had the classes above? Um, it was just because that was what the thing was. That's what you did. Mm. And it was no wonder that you'd class after class with pretty poor attainment uh, when this, there was no differentiation by the rate at which people were learning or based upon the previous uh, knowledge. So this idea of <coughs> pre-teaching diagnostics, uh, remediation, uh, the extension and the checking and all of this built in together <coughs> has been extremely powerful. Um and a game changer for me over the past few years. It's not to say that I wasn't checking prerequisite knowledge or I wasn't doing formative assessment. Um, and I wasn't, occasionally you were pushing the boundaries, so I was meant to take 10 periods for that, or I've taken 12, or I'll skip a couple of stats because it's rubbish, <laughs> whatever. But um, it's like, given this, it's, it's, just, it's cut you loose. Mm. You just teach properly. And once you've got them where you want them, then you move on. Um, and I found that very liberating, um, to be honest. Fantastic. Much more cheerful. Fantastic. Great, great set of answers there. Well, um, time for me to shut up now and hand over to you, Chris, for, for your big three. Um, I wonder if there are three websites or blog posts that you'd recommend listeners will check out. And I'll put links to these in the show notes, as well as as many of the things that I, I can I can remember that we've chatted about over this over this epic conversation. So, so what are you going for for number one for your big three, Chris? Um, n- number one in the big three, I think, would probably have to be it's a book again if that's okay yeah of course um i would be going with uh, thinking mathematically uh john mason and others um I, because this importance of us doing math mathematics as teachers and putting ourselves in that in the shoes of pupils and uh, being aware of our own mathematical behavior is vital and i think it's something we don't do enough uh, and that book is an absolutely phenomenal framework 
uh, for how to be mathematical and how to behave mathematically. Um, so that would be on there. Great choice. Um, great choice. <clears throat> <clears throat> pardon me. Um, the, the the second one here, I, I th- pardon me a few seconds, um, I, I'd be suggesting probably Don Stewart's website. Mm. And I'd be looking at Don Stewart's website, but with a twist, right? Because I know a lot of people say Don Stewart's website. It's amazing. There's tons of stuff on it. But I'd be suggesting look at Don Stewart's website and look at how you can go beyond just doing the task. Because his stuff has taken on new meaning for me in the past couple of years. Because I used to just give out the sheet, they do it, and then we move on. But having like, stumbled across some of his presentations online, that's not how he uses it at all. What he does is he, he gets them to solve the problem, but then he begins to get them to do try specific cases, and then he always tries to move towards the generalised solution mm. and actually develops mathematical thinking from the back of it and moves them forward in that sense. Um, so it's it's a resource that people will know about, but it's actually thinking, well, how are you using this? Are you just giving it out as a sheet or are you using it in a deeper way? Are you are you using it to help them um, really kind of <coughs> develop those behaviours rather than just some practice yeah great 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 shout there and um, again to make the most of it i mean he's a genius is don stewart and it's one of my life ambitions yeah. to get him get him on the show he keeps turning me down and um, but fingers crossed i will do i'll do i will do one day and one just going back to something we said earlier um one of the criticisms of, of don stewart's website probably the only criticism actually is that don doesn't put the answers on there but going back to what we said before that's actually a strength because it forces you as the teacher to actually do the activities oh, yeah. beforehand and that's when you, you get a better sense better sense of them and you start to think of these as you say these extra little developments different ways we can take them and and so on and so forth so uh-huh. yeah and um, i can never hear enough recommendations for, for don's website so superb and what are you going for for your final one chris um i think it would be the stem website um and the main reason for that is stem.org.uk is because on there they have Absolutely tons of stuff, which for some of us was before our time mm. or appears to be lost. So I'm talking about how they've got Smile, they've got SMP, they've got the old Scottish Mathematics uh, programme on there. There's a whole host of stuff in there. Uh, phenomenal resources, which, like, it's one of the things, okay, you and I have talked about creating tasks, but there are so many amazing tasks out there. Mm. Uh, I'm sure Bob Dylan said at one point, um, I don't need to write any more songs because all the songs that could ever exist already exist. <laughs> it turns out he was wrong. But with with uh, tasks that are like tasks didn't just start when Twitter came about. But there's been millions of people, experienced educators working before, and that is a place where you can go and you can dig in and you can find. And some of it, the same as today, some of it will be really good. Some of it will maybe not hit the spot. But as part of a, a recent work on curriculum design at LaSalle, we've been doing a lot of research into these older programs, and some of the stuff in there is phenomenal. So it's well worth a look at going back. It might not be presented as jazzily as modern. Some of it looks like it's been typewritten and what have you. But it is some absolutely excellent stuff in there, particularly on moving beyond just drill exercises. Yes. So I'd highly recommend 
that's another another great one there and again just as teaser for the episode that i'll probably put out after this one is is johnny griffiths is is coming on the show and i was having a having a a beer with johnny um, at the atmma and he was he wanted to speak specifically about smile in the interview and um because again I've, i've been aware of the smile resources but and and previous guests including dylan william have mentioned how they use them and tom sherrington when they first started teaching i think even ann watson describes how she mm-hmm. used smile at the very start but yeah it's it, it was it was i didn't realize it was kind of a bit of a phenomenon they had like a smile national conference each year and all this kind of stuff so to dig into some of those classic resources and kind of bring them back and get the most use out of them is yeah i think that's a great shout and the stem website is the perfect place to see those well there we go chris that is the end of an absolute epic conversation so a couple of thank yous um, first off the obvious one thank you for giving up your time today particularly um, in, in the build up to Easter and uh, we've spoken for well pretty much three hours um, non-stop so thank you so much for that but also I wanted to thank you specifically for, for, for two things one is for your um, Rich Starting Points website which I think is absolutely phenomenal and you've done well I'll tell you what this is a sign of your humility we've had well let's think when Pete Mattick was on he plugged his book in the first sentence mark mccourt he'll he'll be he'll be plugging his book left (laughs) right and center you've just alluded to your website without even actually kind of stating it so i'm going to give it a massive plug there and it'll be all over the podcast show notes page it's a wonderful idea for a website and so thank you for that and the other thing is I think you're the best user of um, of Twitter that I've seen in terms of kind of maths practitioners, the way you, as I say, the way you share an activity, the way you make it very clear that you're open to criticism, you're open to different suggestions, you make it clear that this is essentially the first iteration of the task, and the way you pull in people, you're not, you're not kind of just going to a certain sector of Twitter, you're pulling in all different viewpoints, and I think that's a lesson that we can all learn from, that's, that's, that's the way to get the most out of it so um yeah you're you're a kind of shining light for that chris so thank you for all the wonderful stuff you've done and it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today thank you for having me on craig it's been brilliant talking to you so there you have it there was my interview with chris mcgrain I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. As I say, I I don't know Chris all that well. I've I've been lucky enough to meet him on on two or three occasions. But every time I meet him or I'm lucky enough to listen to him, I learn flipping loads. And again, I just found that a fascinating conversation to dig deep into some with somebody who's been, as I say, teaching roughly the same amount of time as me, was ignorant, naive, just unaware of educational research, then started reading stuff, started speaking to people who knew far more about it than than I did or Chris did. But then, fascinatingly, we've, we've, we've gone off in slightly different directions. I don't think we disagree as much as I thought going into this conversation we would disagree. But there are certainly dif- differences there, which, again, that's healthy, isn't it? It's always fascinating to, to hear and be challenged by people who have different opinions to, to that of your own. So, what am I going to reflect uh, upon in this takeaway? Well, there are two things. First, something that Chris said, which as soon as he said it, I thought... Wow, I need, I need to have a think about that. And then I want to dig deep from the majority of this takeaway um, 
uh, about task design. So first, what, what did Chris say? Well, well, Chris spoke about changing his mind and he, and he described essentially kind of three phases of how his thinking's changed. It went from first off, not thinking initially in his career. And I can go, I'm going to put my hand up. I can go along with that. Not thinking hard about what we were doing and why we were doing it. Then he had a shift, a kind of an extreme shift to direct instruction. And then it was this final thing, what, what really caught my attention. Chris now describes that the final phase in this kind of transformation has been to teaching how he always wanted to teach. Now, I'm going to be honest here. I am not teaching at the moment how I always wanted to teach. If you'd have asked me one year, two years into my teaching uh, career, would you like to be standing up at the front doing silent teacher? So you're not saying a word. The kids aren't saying a word. Then you're doing kind of narration and annotation. Then I'm doing processes like atomization. Then I'm giving uh, students sequences of questions that are minimally different where something's changed and a lot stayed the same. If you'd have asked me two, you know, two or three years into my teaching career, even five or six years into my teaching career, is that how you want to be teaching? I'd be like, no, do I heck? Do I want to be teaching maths like that? I want my kids all solving problems. I want them working through open-ended problems, the kind of maths that I used to love absolutely and still do love working through. So I am not teaching how I always wanted to teach. And I'm a little bit kind of jealous that, that Chris is. But what I will say is this. First off is that the way I'm teaching at the moment um, is a lot more fun for my students than I would imagine. And if you'd have said to me, you know, two or three years into my career, this is how you're going to be teaching. I'd have been thinking, oh my God, them lessons sound absolutely horrendous. The kids will absolutely hate this, but they don't. The way I've kind of developed Silent Teacher, so it's a more interactive process these days with opportunities for students to self-explain. So I do a thing where every time I take my pen off the board, that's my students prompt to ask themselves, what has he just done? What's he going to do next? So there's, there's, there's interactivity in there. It's not just a passive um experience for students, the work I do with minimally different problems, my, my kind of take on variation theory or intelligent practice, where it's not just students kind of mindlessly going through practice on autopilot, but again, it's every time they get to a question, it's asking themselves, what's changed from the previous question? What stayed the same? How do I expect this to change my answer? And then reflecting on it and discussing it with the person next to them and discussing it with me. That for me, it, 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 it's fun. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's it, it's fun for my students. Um, I believe it's fun for me. I enjoy it. But it's not how I envisaged myself teaching, if that makes sense. And the second thing I'll say on this is by going through this process early on in a learning episode, to use Mark McCourt and, and Chris McGrain's terminology, by doing more direct, explicit instruction, more teacher-led instruction early on in the learning episode, it then allows my students to, to engage and get more out of the rich problem-solving activities that I always wanted to do it actually opens the door and allows them to, to get much more and get, get much more learning, confidence and enjoyment out of them than if I was doing those all the time. So whilst I may not be teaching the way I always wanted to teach all the time, two things to say. First off is that the way I am teaching is a lot more fun than I might imagine it to have been. And it's also allowing me to teach in the way I always wanted to later on in the learning episode.
I hope that makes sense anyway. As I say, it's just, just something that's swimming around in my head. And I thought that's actually a difference between, between me and Chris. And the second thing I wanted to chat about was, um, was task design. Now, um, I, I, I loved going deep with Chris onto this. Um, and Johnny Griffiths, um, that, that episode, which will be coming out after um, the, the Chris's episode in a few weeks' time from when you listen to this, we do a similar thing where Johnny's a master of task design and I ask him to select some of his favourite tasks and we talk about using them and, and why he likes them and how to adapt them and so on. Because early on in my career, I was flipping lazy when it came to, to, to choices of tasks and design of tasks. I'd just go on Tez, find a five-starer. If it looked pretty, let's give that out to the kids. Let's see what happens. Um, and it's only of late that I've started being a lot more picky with the tasks that I use from, from other people. And Almost all the time, I'll adapt them. But also, um, over the last couple of years, I've, I've started writing a lot more of my own activities. Um, and I just thought it'd be useful, perhaps perhaps if just selfishly for me to kind of get my thoughts out there, about what I think about now when I when I start to write an activity. And I'd be fascinated if, for, for listeners if, it, if it's the same um, of how, how you approach task design or whether I'm just a bit weird with this. So the first thing I do is I go back to my favorite, probably my favorite quote of all time and um, from Dan Willingham. I ask myself, what will my students be thinking about whilst they're doing this task or this activity? And if it's not the, the mathematics, if it's not the, the subject, the topic, the concept in question, then I've just got to stop and think, is this right? And an example of that would be whenever I used to just get a five-star resource off Taz, it would involve cutting, sticking, coloring, or more subtly, there'd be some, some kind of distracting context in there. For example, one of those murder mystery things, which, which can be really, really, really good. But if students get too bogged down in the context surrounding it, it distracts from the thinking about the mathematics. So that's the first thing I ask myself, what will my students be thinking about? The next thing I ask myself is, is about differentiation. Is it possible for my students to access this task or this activity at different levels? And crucially, can I avoid having to make any decisions in advance about which students will be um, accessing it at different levels? Because I can't make that decision. I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the evidence to make a decision in advance about how students, are, how different students are gonna find different aspects of this activity. And in the past, that has led to some incredibly dodgy differentiation decisions that I've made. Josie always flies through this, so let's give her some extreme maths. Jenny always struggles, so let's make sure she's got some support material. It becomes self-fulfilling and, and it's really, really problematic. So I want a task that I can give out to all my students and I can essentially see what happens. I can be on hand to provide support when needed. I can be on hand to provide challenge when needed, but that will be real-time decisions. They won't be made beforehand. That for me feels important. And finally, I want a task that encourages interesting conversations and questions, both between my students and between me and my students. And I, if I go back to kind of just boring old worksheets, Where's your, I mean, they're important in terms of the practice and fluency that they may enable our students to develop. But where's the interesting chat going on there? It's like, John, what did you get for question five? Oh, I got this. Yeah, me too. 
and then crack on. That's it done and dusted. Whereas with really good tasks, there's potential for kids. And you just see this whenever kids are working through them, they can't help but have interesting conversations with each other. And then it just makes my job as a teacher so much easier when I can bring it to the front and have a whole class discussion and I can ask some really interesting questions. So that's what I'm looking at. What will my students be thinking about? Can I differentiate? And will it encourage interesting conversations and questions? And I just wanted to highlight two types of activities or tasks that I've been writing myself of late and just how I've tried to tap into those. And I'll put links to these in, in the show notes. They're both available on my website. Um, the first is the fill in the gaps activities that I've been writing for my variation theory website. Um, and one in particular that, that I've, I've written is, is on quadratic graphs. And it's a really simple idea and um, students are given there's different forms of quadratic um, expressions so you've got kind of an x squared plus bx plus c form then you've got a factorized form a completed the square form and then with those three forms I ask students to plot the graph so where's where's it cross the x-axis where's it cross the y-axis where does the graph turn and do a sketch of the graph marking on these key things and what I try to do with the fill in the gaps is is two things to tap into my understanding um, or my take on variation theory. The first thing is I vary the information given. So um, on the first example, I will give students x squared minus 2x minus 3 and challenge them to factorize, complete the square, x-intercepts, y-intercepts, turning point and sketch. But then on the second question, I'll vary what I give them. So I'll give them the factorized form. So I'll give them x minus one, x plus three. And then can they fill in the gaps, hence the name, to you know change it into all those equivalent forms and do the graph. And then on the third one, I'll vary the information again. I'll give them a sketch. Can they fill in the rest of the information? And by varying the, the information given, again, I think, I hope, it forces students off autopilot. It makes them think hard about what they know, what they don't know, and how that's going to change their approach. But the second type of variation I try to do throughout filling the gaps is um, changing things throughout between rows themselves. So I don't just randomly come up with a quadratic expression for question one, then a different one for question two and a different one for question three there's um, they're related so for example the the quadratic in in row one comes to be x squared take two x take three in row two it's x squared plus two x take three so there's opportunities for students to notice relationships between rows and i can then start to talk about my reflect expect check behavior what do you notice what's changed what stayed the same how do you expect that to change your answers? Which 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 rows can you which which gaps can you fill in without doing any more working out? And then now let's check it. So let's do the factorization. Let's do the completing the square. Check. Are there any surprises? If you are surprised, can you understand why? If you're not surprised, how would you help? How would you explain it to somebody who was surprised? So by these fill in the gap activities, hopefully. I'm, I'm doing the kind of three things I set out to do when I talk about task design. So what will my students be thinking about? Well, hopefully quadratic expressions. There's no other context wrapped up in there or anything like that. Is the differentiation? Well, yeah, there is. Students can access it without thinking about relationships at all if they want. Just practice their basic factorizing, completing the square skills and so on. But there's opportunity to spot connections, to discuss relationships, to make predictions within it. And then does it encourage interesting conversations and questions? Well, yeah, I think it does. And one thing I'm, I'm re experimenting with with um, 
the fill in the gaps activity is to give one fill in the gaps grid between two students and then give the each student a blank piece of paper. So all the working out goes individually on the blank piece of paper and then they use the fill in the gaps kind of template um, as an answer grid in, in, in a sense. And students can only put their answers into the grid whenever they both agree on it. And I found that by doing this, the kids, the conversations the kids have are brilliant because particularly whenever they disagree on something or whenever a, a child says, well, that can't be right because look at the row above and so on and so forth. So yeah, I, I really like these fill in the gaps activities. I've written about 10 of them, something like that. They're all on variationtheory.com. And I would, oh God, if, if people are listening and they've got ideas for these fill in the gaps and they want to send them in. Wow, I will be a happy man. Um, and the uh, the second type of uh, activity is my Venn diagrams. Now, I started writing these Venn diagram activities years ago, probably about eight or nine years ago now. And over, uh, I think about a year ago or something like that, I built the website mathsvens.com. I need a catchier name than that, mathsvens.com, uh, to host these and so people could send them in and we could build up a, a big bank of these. And there's over 300, something like that now. Um, and I really like these as, as activities. So the one I want to talk about just briefly here, again, is on quadratic graphs. I thought it'd be useful to, to look at two different activity types for the same topic. And what you've got here, and this is in the show notes, but you've got three um, intersecting circles, which generates eight different regions, A through to H. And the top left-hand circle, um, I've labeled all solutions are positive. The top right, I've labeled the y-intercept is negative. And the bottom circle, I've labeled as the line of symmetry is an integer. And the challenge is, can students come up with a quadratic equation that could belong in each of those eight regions? And if they believe a particular region's impossible, they have to convince me why. Now, I really like Venn diagram activities. And if we go back to my kind of selection criteria, so what will my students be thinking about? Well, again, there's no other context. There's no cutting. There's no snipping going on. So again, hopefully it's about quadratic graphs is the differentiation. Well, yeah, it's brilliant with Venn diagrams because by definition, every quadratic equation in the world belongs somewhere in that Venn diagram. So I can sit down with a student and say, well, just name a quadratic expression. Or I can come up with one for the child and we can sit down and work through systematically. Does it belong in this circle? Why not? Does it belong in this circle? Why not? And so on and so forth. But then as more and more regions get filled in, the task gets more and more challenging. And you've got that extra twist of, do you think a region's impossible? If so, convince me why and so on. And does it encourage interesting conversations and questions? Well, yeah, it does, particularly whenever um, kids have put either... Um, different quadratic equations in the same region, how can they check whether each other's right? Or, and this is my favourite, whenever the same quadratic expression appears in different regions, well, then it's all kicking off. So, yeah, it's just another of a, a kind of task design structure that I think lends itself quite well to deep, solid mathematical thinking. And the final thing I'll say on this is, is why I like the fill in the gaps and the quadratic uh, and the Venn diagram activities is because I can use that same structure for lots of different areas of mathematics, which, mean which means time is not lost in setting out expectations or setting out the rules or explaining the task structure itself. I can just say, we're doing a Venn diagram or we're doing a fill in the gaps. And if kids have done these before, they know what's expected. So we don't lose curriculum time or lesson time in any of that admin faffy stuff. We're just straight down to business.
Anyway, so yeah, I just, th- that's what I've been thinking about. Speaking to Chris, who's, who's really thinking hard about task design at the moment, just got me thinking hard and reflecting on it. And hopefully that's been of, been of some use to, to anybody listening. And as I say, if you ever um, had the inclination and the time to contribute to my either variation theory or fill in the, or um, Venn diagram websites or SSDD problems, then I'm always on the lookout for, for people to send in activities there. And it just helps, it helps the websites grow and grow and grow in the exact same way I did with diagnostic questions. So, flipping heck, I need to shut up. I've, I've gone on almost as long as the interview here. Um, a couple of things for me, a couple of little thank yous. First off, thank you, of course, to Chris McGrain for, for sharing his time, his wisdom and his expertise. I absolutely loved the conversation. Uh, thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. Um, and a massive thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning into these. Um, I'm loving the, love, I mean, I've always loved the podcast, but I'm particularly loving these, these more recent episodes here. Just, we're going deep into areas that absolutely fascinate me and I hope you're enjoying them too and if you want to support the podcast easiest way is to help spread the word tell a friend suggest an episode uh, leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from that makes a massive difference and if you do want to contribute then patreon.com forward slash Mr Barton Maths is the place to go oh and if you want to sponsor the podcast and why wouldn't you then just drop me an email at mrbartonmaths at gmail.com and we can discuss some of the options available there anyway I'll definitely shut up now. Hope you enjoyed that episode. You take care of yourselves and bye for now. <laughs>